2: Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil.
3: Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Donnie is joining us today. Tom, would you like to introduce him? Absolutely.
1: And real quick, I just want to say, folks, if you like the show, let us know. And if you want to support the show, you can do that through Patreon. As always, we have a link in the description. We have Donnie, and Donnie is a fellow Oregonian. He lives actually not too far from me and from an area that uh, Will and I have been doing some research. But Donnie, you had some real interesting situations going on. Now, this was south quite a bit south this would be uh, I'm just going to say it this was down outside of Roseburg Oregon and I'm going to I'm going to hand the mic to you but one of the things that you and I talked about was this is what a lot of people go through they have something that's unexplainable but it isn't quite at the threshold of eye-to-eye contact with the Bigfoot Correct. But everything else is eliminated. And so they're a little bit reticent to say it was a Bigfoot because, you know, you you probably didn't have any previous experience. But on the other hand, it, it perfectly dovetails so many known encounters with these things. So with that said, I'm going to go ahead and hand the mic to you and fill us in on the shadow, the, the footprints, everything.
2: Okay. Well, good morning. Uh, yeah, you know. Um, so I saw the uh, your your flyer up there uh, at a, at a store not too far from me, and really I contacted you because I'm still searching for answers. Um, I, I wasn't trying to get on. I did. I in all honesty, I didn't know you had a show, uh, but uh, uh, I have been looking for for answers, and uh, um, i I would I would consider th- I wouldn't consider this your typical. I hate to use the word citing. I really do. Um, uh, to me, it, it has to be real. And this uh, this situation that these situations that I went through, um, they were kind of spread out. And uh, initially, I didn't put it together. Um, I, I thought it was kids and whatnot. Uh, so anyway, when I contacted you, uh, Tom, I just I just was really hoping maybe to get a little insight, a little you know something a little more than what I had. And uh, it was encouraging uh, because it sounds like there are what what I went through is similar to what other people have gone through. So uh, it started in uh, 2015. I had uh, I was I was uh, living alone and I had just moved into a little one bedroom. um, uh, I can't call it a one bedroom house, but uh, it was a it was a large house. And the, the main portion of the house was upstairs, and then downstairs is a one-bedroom rental. And then on the other side of the house, there was a two-bedroom rental. Nobody was living there, but it was out in Camas Valley. And uh, Camas Valley, uh, uh, you're correct, Tom. Uh, you go to Roseburg. A little bit further south, there's Winston. And then you can take the you t- take the highway over to uh, Coos Bay, and right in the middle, right up on top of the mountain, is uh, Camas Valley. And uh, that was about August. It was uh, 80 acres. And, uh, it's, uh, I, I think most people would consider it remote. Uh, it's not remote by Alaska standards, but for, uh, the lower 48, uh, you know, you're out there, you're out there in the woods. Uh, like say the property that I was on was about 80 acres. And I think most of the landowners around that area, they probably had, mm-hmm. uh, acreage that was very similar. Um, but I, but I moved in. Uh, in uh it was actually on a sunday when i moved into that place i kind of threw everything on the floor at that time i had been working at a mill and uh again back in about 2015 and i had taken a break from the railroad i was working at a mill the next morning uh after after i moved in uh uh went to work and um so worked all day. When I come home, it's about midnight. By the time I roll down the driveway, now the driveway was about I would it at least it's um, it's not a, it's not a half mile, but it's more than a quarter mile. Um, but uh, it, there was a gate up there, uh, not much of a gate, but uh, the the landlord who was not there, uh, she she had said that she wanted me to to lock and unlock that as every time I went through, which is a little bit of a hassle, but but I was okay with it. So um, went through the gate and I come down the driveway, it's pitch black. And as I'm coming down to the driveway, driveway kind of weaves around through the trees and then you break out into these orchards. And then there's the house and my little, my little flat that was uh, downstairs had a motion light. And as I came down the, uh, the road, my porch light flicked on. And I saw deer, and uh, deer went running everywhere. But what caught my attention was there's a, there was an apple tree, and I saw it was just a silhouette. But the only way I can describe it is like a bulky, like a like a really husky lemur. Now, I've 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 told this to a few people, and they I always get a few eyebrows raised on that one. But if you've ever seen a the way a lemur jumps. Uh, it was simply the silhouette. It had been underneath that apple tree, but it had also been there with, um, a couple deer and it did not have a tail, but when it jumped, if you've ever seen like shows of lemurs, when they jump, they, they kind of jump with their, with their arms in the air. And when my porch light came on, there was this silhouette. It looked like a kind of a husky lemur. And when it jumped, it was just a big spring. And the uh, one of the things that I really noticed was it, it looked like it had really long, stringy hair hanging off of its forearms. This thing is probably two, two and a half feet tall. And, again, I could see no tail. And, uh, and again, it was just a silhouette. And I thought to myself, I thought, what in the world was that? And I'm thinking you know, was that like a small cougar? Was that a bobcat? It wasn't a bobcat. It was obvious it wasn't. I've seen many cougar. Um, I've seen quite a few bobcats and, uh, obviously not a deer, not a raccoon. And, uh, this is in Western Oregon and I'm, I'm kind of going through, I it. was like, what in the world was that? So didn't get too excited about it. I thought it was something interesting. And, uh, uh, anyway, went to, uh, uh, I went into my my little one bedroom, and uh, I think I watched a little bit of TV, and then I, and then I went to sleep. Uh, next morning, again, I was working swing shift, so the next morning I got up and uh, I was starting to put my stuff away, and again, this is a brand new house to me, and uh, it was August, and, I, and the only door in and out of this little one bedroom was a sliding glass door, and I slid that open, had the had the uh, screen door open and there was a breeze coming through. It was really nice. I was very happy about where I was at. And I heard, I heard voices and I really didn't think anything of it. I figured it must've been a neighbor. And uh, so as I continued to put things away and I was kind of going in and out of the house of the truck. Um, uh, one of the things that I do is I, 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 I bow hunt. And so as I grabbed my, my, uh, my target I thought, well, you know, I'll just I'll just go set the target up out at the edge of the grass and that we have a nice place to shoot. And as I walked out to the edge of the grass and I put the uh, target down, uh, I could hear those voices. But that's when I really started paying attention and I couldn't see anybody, but it was just up in the trees. And I'm guessing it's a it's purely a guess, maybe, I don't know, uh, 50, 60, 70 yards uh, up in the uh, up in the trees. And what I heard sounded like gibberish—absolute gibberish. It 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 almost sounded like somebody was playing with their words. Um, here in the Northwest, you you have a lot of migrant workers that come out. Uh, we're very—I'm very familiar with uh, with what uh, Spanish sounds like. It was not Spanish. Um, uh, we get—it's not uncommon to get seasonal mushroom pickers. Uh, and a lot of those of uh, are of Oriental descent, and you, you kind of get a feeling for that language. It was like nothing I had ever heard. Uh, it literally sounded like somebody was playing with words. Um, it wasn't any dis- it it was discernible in the in the sense that there was some symmetry to it. And if I were to guess, I would say there was two of them um, talking to one another. Um, I have done my, and and this is, I kind of started this off with, you know, saying that I've been, I've been looking for answers and I, all these little details I put, I put together and they don't make sense. And yet by the time I hash the whole thing out, I keep running out of answers. And this is one of those strange little things that really, uh, I really didn't get to tie it together until. Uh, It was about a year later, but I but again, um, it was just gibberish and they're up there didn't sound like, uh, you know, it just sounded like casual conversation. But it was uh, it was no language that I had ever heard. Um, I went home or I'm sorry, I went to uh, work that evening and I told one of the guys They they asked me, they said, well, how do you like your new house? And There's a lot of people. They thought that Camas Valley was a long ways to drive, but um, I was really liking it. And, and they, you know, Camas Valley is a beautiful, beautiful area. And I told them, I said, well, I really like it. And I told them about this lemur, monkey, husky, whatever this thing was. And I was telling one of the guys, and uh, he actually sounded kind of interested. Down at the bottom of the hill, I'm going to guess it's probably 15 miles from – uh, camas valley if, if you're heading back towards uh, interstate five there's a little town there called winston and there is a uh, there's a wildlife uh park called uh, wildlife safari and he, and i had i had to drive right past it every day you know when i went to work and uh, he made the comment he says well maybe they had a lemur get loose and uh i i i chuckled and i i said well i i, I guess i said I didn't have a tail only seeing its silhouette, my thought was, well, maybe you know the the tail was kind of wrapped around it, and I just couldn't see the tail. But um, whatever it was, about two and a half, maybe three foot tall, it was husky. It was like muscular. It didn't look like a lemur, but it jumped like when it when it jumped, it, it I remember it's 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 uh, it's, it's forearms were up in the air, and the the wrist kind of dangled as it jumped out in, and it basically jumped into the shadows. And it was just it was like a half second view of whatever this thing was. And you would think if they had lemurs or or anything else running loose, all of Douglas County would know it. That's what you would think. But, uh, you know, we didn't hear anything. Um, And we got a kind of a chuckle out of it. And uh, um, um, so anyway, uh, after after work, that night went back home didn't see anything coming down the driveway um, went in and I was getting ready for bed I turned on the TV a little bit and and uh sitting on the couch and it sounded like a car door that's the best if if you if you can imagine sitting here in your house like uh, sitting sitting on your couch and all of a sudden somebody slams a car door outside that's what it sounded like but it kind of you could kind of feel it you know, it, it didn't shake the house, but you could just kind of feel that little bit of vibration. And I thought to myself, well, maybe the landlord showed up. They they lived in Southern California and uh, they they really used um, that more of a more of a summer recreational getaway. And you know, plus a little bit of investment. You know, for, so like I could I'm making uh, you know, give him a little money with rent. And I waited and I didn't hear anything else. And I, I thought, well, that, that's strange. It's, I think there's somebody outside. So I grabbed my flashlight. And uh, at the time, I was a millwright. So the only flashlights that we had, they were about four inches long. They're about uh, 3 quarters of an inch in diameter, rubber coat. They're great for holding between your teeth when you're crawling up inside a machine and you have to work on it. So But they don't really cast a lot of light. So I walked outside, and the only thing out there was my truck. And um, I looked around and didn't see anything. Kind of, I did my best to shine it out in the orchards, and I, I couldn't see, I didn't see any eyes, didn't see anything out there. I thought, well, that was that's weird. Maybe, maybe somebody came down the driveway, realized they weren't where they belonged, and they left. And I thought, well, that's weird because I shut the gate, and that gate has a lock on it. So didn't hear anything else, and I just you know I just kind of chalked it up to who knows, who knows what goes bump in the night, and. Uh, Went to work the, ne- uh, the next day. The fa- so the following day, I get home about midnight, and kind of the same routine. In fact, that was actually my Friday, so uh, uh, I came home, uh, took a shower, sat down on the couch, was watching a little bit of TV, wait waiting for you know waiting to wind down and get tired so I can go to sleep. And something hit the house. It hit the house in which I actually saw the. Um, cause you, you got this, I got the uh, sliding glass door and you've got the reflection. I actually saw the, the, the sliding glass door shake and I thought, what was that? And I jumped up and, uh, went outside and when I ran, when I went around the edge of the, uh, uh of the house where I'm looking at the driveway, I'm listening. There's nothing there. There's no cars. There's nobody there. Got my little, got my little flashlight out. And up the driveway, I hear, I thought it was laughter. Um, that, in, that, was my initial, that was my initial impression. I thought it was laughter. And again, my initial thought was, uh, this, ha- this house has probably been empty for a while. And we've probably been having kids come out here and make out or, or drink or whatever they normally do. And, you know, they're coming down and now there's a truck there. And so now their hideout or, you know, their getaway spot has been taken. Again, these are my initial thoughts. I'm not thinking Bigfoot. I'm not thinking anything except for I've got kids playing. But I heard this. It sounded like laughter up in the trees. And uh, I was kind of ticked. I thought, thought, you know, doggone kids are out here messing around. And I I don't want them messing with my stuff. And um, I kind of hung out there for a little while. Didn't hear anything else. And as I sat there and I just kind of looked into the darkness and, uh, uh, you know, th- you know I, I figured maybe I'd hear a, 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 a truck engine or something like that way up on the road. Nothing. I was really thinking about what I heard. And it came to me that it wasn't really laughter. But it was as though, and, and this may sound silly, but it sounded like somebody spoke at at, at, like, at, 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 just like that. It wasn't true laughter. It was like AT, 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 at. And the more I thought about it, I, I thought, well, that is weird. That's really strange. It wasn't laughter, or, or was it? And, you know, I start doubting myself as, like, well, I heard something, but maybe I'm just, maybe it's late and uh, we just got a bunch of teenagers out. There. But th- that stuck with me. It wasn't true laughter but it was as though somebody said at, at, at real quick. And again, initially I did, initially I thought it was laughter, but the more I thought it was like, no, that don't make sense. And uh, uh, it was, uh, so that was, that was my Friday night. And then I had to, uh, so I was working four tens. I had three days off. And during that time, a landlord calls, she comes from, she calls up from uh, California and she wanted to know how it was. And she is very curious, you know, she said, I can have all the apples I want. And I can have all the, the peaches. And, and uh, do I like it there? Was the, how is it to my satisfaction? And, and, and I was, we were having a great talk. And, but I mentioned to her, and I said, well, I heard the neighbors. Uh, they're somewhere behind the house. And, and I heard them up there talking. And uh, she, she got a little quiet. And she said, there are no neighbors. You're the only person up there. And I said, "There's not a house behind here." She goes, "No, that just that just heads up into the into the mountain." And uh, you're going up at the, the mountain range. There is called the Callahans. And she says, "There's nothing behind you. There should be no." But she was she was a little bit uh, I don't, don't want to say upset, but she was pretty stern. She said, "You are the only person that has uh, authority to be on our property. So if you see or you know anybody, you you have our you know, you, you tell them that they can't be there." Okay. So the next day, um, or I'm sorry, uh, that, that afternoon I walked beyond the grass and I, I had a, um, it was probably 75 yards from the house to the tree line, about 40 yards of that was grass. And then after that, it looked like at once upon a time they had, they had logged some of it and they never really cleaned it up. So there's blackberries and there was a lot of sticks and blow down. It was just a, it was a real tangled mess. And I kind of picked my way through there, and I got up to the tree line, and there's a very well-established trail that went up through the tree line. And I assumed deer, elk, that's what I was assuming. There's a lot of Roosevelt elk out there. And uh, so I followed that trail on up, and uh, I was actually kind of excited. I thought, ooh, this is a nice trail. I bet you we've got elk out here. And and uh, uh, I followed that trail I'm guessing a half a mile, maybe not quite that far. And it broke out into an opening, a big, where the, uh, where they had logged it and there was just this big clearing and, uh, I could see the mountains is real pretty. And I looked up maybe another, I don't know, quarter of a mile and you could see a logging road up there. And, uh, so there was nothing. Uh, There was just, there was really not, there was this trail went up to the clear cut and then eventually up to that logger road and uh, no houses. And I did kind of poke around to see if there was any, uh, you know, could, could, could there be mushroom pickers out there? It was so dry. I doubt, I doubt there's any mushrooms growing. Uh, I'm not a mushroom picker, so I wouldn't know, but I, I kind of poked around, Uh, did see lots of uh, deer tracks, but that was about it. And that was really for the most part, um, the last anything happened in 2015. Uh, it was a year later, one year later. Uh, so I uh, had a great year. Um, uh, went through the winter. We had a little bit of snow. Uh, no no problems uh, whatsoever. Uh, went to spring, summer, had a great summer. And we came back into uh, August. So in Oregon, bow season starts like the last weekend of August and it goes through about the last weekend of September. That's kind of a general rule of thumb. So it was uh, mid, mid August. And, uh, by this time I had learned where all the logging roads were. And what I was doing is I was driving, I drive out, go out on the pavement and I would actually go to the beginning of that logging road. That was, uh, behind the house sometimes I wouldn't drive sometimes I'd walk it was about four miles and I really enjoyed the time this particular day I did I did not drive I walked and I was walking down that uh, I was walking up that gravel road and I had my bow with me and I was uh, uh we call it stump shooting I, I shoot traditional archery and I was just shooting at dirt clods and pine cones and it just just kind of keeping my skills sharp and I got up to a particular point, the road forked, and I took the left fork. And this is the part that really—I I think this is one of the one of the parts of this of this whole story that really has—I don't want to say shook me up. Uh, it didn't put me in fear, but it—it's—and uh, I, I hate to use the word haunt. But it's it's the it's the one thing that I can can grasp and I can say that was real. Uh, I I may have heard things as but this was real. And as I'm walking, there was a sound that came behind me. And. It sounded like it was about three feet behind me. And the the only way I can describe it. Is. uh, Now, I've never been around gorillas. Um, I, I think I've been to a zoo a couple times in my life, um, seen them, you know, behind glass. But I've seen lots of, you know, lots of uh, National Geographic. Uh, so that's my that's what my only exposure to what a gorilla might sound like. But the sound was as though something went uh, 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 just like that, except for it sounded as though it was Three feet behind me, it actually shook my chest. And in that nanosecond, I thought I'm dead. It, it felt that close. I spun around, literally expecting something to be on top of me, and I had no idea what it. Uh, the, the 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 moment I heard it, the the whole thing probably took one second maybe a second and a half I spun around and there was nothing there and I stood there motionless and I've got my bow and I'm thinking this bow is not going to do me a bit of good um I literally thought if anything about the best I could ever hope for is just get the bow between me and whatever that was but there was nothing there and I sat there and and uh you know, I had goosebumps because uh, it was it was kind of spooky, and I looked. There was there was nothing. There was a little bit of a grass slope to my left. Uh, there was that clear cut I was telling you earlier about was off to my right, and the trail that goes down to uh, my little one bedroom down there. And I I just stood there motionless, and I looked, and I was hoping to hear what that was. Um. I needed to know its direction. Um, you know, I need to know if I, I, I need to know which way to run. And yeah. I stood, I stood there waiting and it just, and I, I mean, I was just holding my breath and then I heard it again. And the only way I can describe it to you is it sounded enraged, whatever it was. And it, what, what was so bewildering to me was there was a, there was a hill and I'm going to guess that hill's about 200 yards. That's a long ways. 200 yards is a long ways. if uh, And it's, it's a pretty good sized hill. It was covered in virgin timber. It was all Douglas firk, which is kind of a shaggy tree. And I heard it again. And when I heard it, I could pinpoint it was coming from that, which again, uh, 175, 200, maybe a little more yards away and the sound absolutely sounded like it was going through me. Um, if you could ever project a voice, if 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 that was ever possible, that's what it was like. And this second time, it sounded absolutely enraged. And uh, uh, and again, the my I had goosebumps. I'm holding the bow, and I'm thinking this is useless. Whatever, whatever this is, I'm completely defenseless. And uh, I waited and uh, um, heard nothing more. I probably waited another three minutes because there's a part of me thinking, is it getting closer? Is it getting further away? Um, but what was so unbelievable uh it's one of those moments in in life in which you you think you have a pretty good grasp on life and then you encounter something that is so far outside of what you know to be normal and and that was the sound like I say it was almost as though this thing was this sound was going through me and uh I started walking uh, again, uh, there was a part of me that I, w- I didn't want to, I, did, I didn't want to chicken out, but there was another part of me, I kind of wanted to get away, and to to get back to my house, to go back the road, the, the same way that I went, I would actually have to walk in that direction, and I was, uh, not by much, but enough to where I didn't want to, so I kept, kind of. I started kind of backing up, didn't hear anything else, I noticed that the birds were still chirping, and and uh, there were some robins up there, and I saw some chickadees. Um, it was as though the world was normal. It was like there was really nothing going on. It wasn't like there was a stillness in the air, and the hairs on the back of my neck were standing. Nothing like that. It was just everything was just – the woods were just doing their thing. and. So I started walking, and the more I walked, I realized, you know what, you, I got to turn around and go back. <laughs> so eventually, I did. I stopped, turned around, and as I got closer and closer to that part, I, that 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 point where I heard that, I found myself almost tiptoeing because it was a gravel log road. And uh, I got to the point, nothing there. I looked around, you know, looked around real good, and I still wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking Bigfoot. Um, I don't, you know, in my mind, I was going through bear. Absolutely not. Um, you know, elk, not even close deer. They don't make much noise, but that's obviously not. And I could not, I could not connect that sound with anything that I knew of. Um. So I, I realized that time was getting late, and I was going to have to go, I, and I didn't want to be late for work, and I realized, well, you know what? If I just cut down the through this, uh, this clear cut, I'll hit that trail, and then I'll pop up right into my backyard. So I did, and I have to admit, by the time I got to the trail that was in the tree line, um, I was jogging. Um Um, I don't know if I was just trying to get in shape or if I was actually trying to get away, but, but uh, it didn't take long. And there was my backyard and I went, I went down through the grass and got ready for work. So that, that was the noise uh, that I heard. And, 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 and I I struggle with it because I have, I have tried so hard. There's been, I've actually told this story one other time. I've talked to my wife about it and she has been so supportive and no matter what I do, I cannot give, I cannot do it justice what I heard or what I felt or how it literally felt as though it was in my face. Um, even though it was obvious that whatever was making that noise was up on that hill. And to this day, I'm listening to the words come out of my mouth and I'm just shaking my head like what in the world was that? So, um, that night uh after getting off work i came back i showed up to uh showed up to the house around midnight and uh i went inside i wasn't thinking too much about it but uh a little bit i kind of thought about it throughout the day uh, during shift and um, uh, took a shower turned on tv and uh, motion light came on now that was very common uh, the emotional night coming on the, uh, there was a lot of deer. And by this time of the year, they're going into the backyard. There's some plums. There was a, there was one apple tree that was dropping apples. Seemed, seemed awful early in the year for me, but it was in August. Uh, we're looking, we're about mid to late August. So for me being a, a bow hunter, I keep hoping and dreaming that I'll, lo- I'll look out the back door and there'd be a big buck out there. Never happened. All I ever saw was a does and, and a bunch of yearlings, and um, but I did. I looked out. I looked out the uh, looked out the door, and I didn't see anything. And I thought to myself, "Well, that's kind of strange. Uh, some, normally, the port, the uh, the motion light goes on, and there will be a deer. And uh, you know, again, underneath that apple tree. Well, there was nothing. And I thought that was strange. And uh, so I actually opened the door up a little bit further, and I stepped out. And uh, the motion light was uh, above above the door. It probably sticks out about eight inches. And so, I, I I stood there and I'm looking around. It was a it was a nice evening, pitch black outside, and um, the edge of the timber was about. And I, I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing around seventy five, maybe eighty yards from from the sliding glass door. That was the edge of the timber. And I had been there a year and I had you know the motion light had come on many times and I've stuck my head out that door many times and with the light of that motion light you 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 can see the timber up up there you don't see any uh, there's no definition but you just you can tell there's you've got the, the vertical trees and uh, you kind of get used to where the stumps are and where the logs are and where the certain trees and certain bunch of, And, uh, you know, after doing that for a year, everything, you kind of have an idea where everything is in its place. And, and, uh, but this time I looked out there and I saw something. And this thing was huge. It was, and I don't know what it was. I, it was, it was just in the tree line. And when I looked at it, it's, its width I would guess would be about four and a half to five feet wide my initial thought was there's a cow out here uh, because I, you could actually see a little bit of uh, horizontal line to it it wasn't all the vert like a tree uh, you see lots of vertical lines the the porch light was not throwing enough good light out there for me to see and all I had was those little flashlights I was talking about and I stared at that and I thought, is that a cow? And, um, and I stood there motionless. I just sat there and watched it and it didn't move. Absolutely. You know, a cow will swish its tail. And it's not uncommon for people to, uh, to have a cow or two and they get out, they push the fence over and they, now they're wandering around in the, in the woods. So I wasn't really thinking anything other than what is that? And I was waiting for a. Swish of a tail or something, and about that time, uh, and I'm I'm motionless. About about that time, my port, my motion light goes off, and so I raise my hand above my head. And I kind of and I get the thing to where it turns back on. It's still there, and so I kind of step aside a little bit. I'm trying to get a better view of it, and I and I realize whatever this thing is, it has what looks like the silhouette of head and shoulders, but there's no neck. It's a, uh, I can see the two horizontal lines and there's this kind of this big bump right between the two. And I looked at that and I thought, is that, is it, my, my thought was something is sitting on the ground. And I mean, just barely inside the tree line and it was not moving. And I think at that point was the first time that I actually thought Bigfoot now a little disclaimer for you know if anybody who uh, cares to listen to this you know I've, I was raised here in the northwest and Bigfoot is like the world's greatest campfire story so as a kid you know your, your dad tells you these stories and boy you sit around the campfire and you love them and so it is something that you think about as a kid and growing up and and I've met uh, a, a number of people that that uh they just wouldn't lie. And so you, you go through life thinking there's got to, you know, all these people are seeing something. Uh, exactly what are they saying? I'm not exactly sure. But there I'm, I'm seeing something. And in my mind, I'm going through every Bigfoot report I've ever read. And it wasn't swaying. It was Absolutely. So motionless. Uh, I started beginning to think maybe it was a stump. Maybe it was a rock that I've overlooked for a year, but it was big. And as I'm, as I'm staring at this and I'm, and I'm, I'm doing my best to try to see what it is. There was a couple times that it, I, I thought I could even make out a, a, like a, a, a brow ridge, and I'd blink my eyes and I'd look at this thing was absolutely emotionless no odor no smell there was no eye shine um there was nothing and I thought okay well I'm just going to sit here and stare at this thing and uh if it's if it, if it's truly something it has to move so I'm uh, I'm 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 staring it's whatever it is it appeared to be squared off to me which later, and actually, Tom, you and I spoke to this later. As I uh, as I recounted this, and I told you the story, um, for something to square off to you is uh, is, is an act of aggression. Uh, you know, if if it's a deer, if it's an elk, they're quartering away, they're turning their back, they're trying to they're trying to move off in the bushes. And this, whatever it was, was not moving. It wasn't swaying. It wasn't leaving and i could tell that it was squared off to me it was it it wasn't quartering away it was broad to me and i watched well the, the light went off again and i stared and i could kind of see it and about that time the light went back on and a deer walked around the, the edge of my house and it was a doe and she she's probably 10 yards from me and she looks up at me she sees me standing there and And then she just keeps meandering her way towards the apple tree. And I said, I thought, okay, if this is, if this is something that I need to be worried about, she's, she's going to alert to it. And, uh, and, and I'll know, I'm going to see something happen. And she walked up to the apple tree and she, she picked her head up and she looked directly at it and ears were forward. And she kind of swished her tail a little bit and, and I'm watching and she maybe looked at it for, 10 seconds it was long enough it was obvious that she was focused on whatever this thing was and then she dropped her head and she grabbed an apple and she started munching on this apple she was not alarmed and i thought well what in the world and i i sat there and i watched and she just she she finished that apple and I took a couple miles of grass, and I think she reached up and grabbed some leaves off of one of the lower branches. She was eating and was not alarmed. And I thought, you know what? My eyes are playing tricks on me. I'm tired. Um, Maybe that sound I heard earlier that day got me a little spooked. Um, You know, I I think most hunters joke about uh, getting up on the hill before the light, uh, before the sun comes up, and uh, you see a, a, a figure and uh, within 10 minutes, you've grown antlers on a stump because you're, you're staring at something so hard. And I looked that they never moved. And I thought, well, maybe it's just, I, it's just something I've overlooked for the last year. So this whole thing probably took five minutes. And so I walked inside. And uh, by then I was getting pretty tired. And uh, I turned off the lights, went, went into my room. And I had just turned the light off in the room. I was about ready to crawl on the bed. And I noticed out of my corner of my eye that the uh, motion light came back on. And so I walked across the living room and I looked out and the deer was gone. So I slid open the door and the deer was gone. And I looked up and whatever that thing was, was gone. I could now... Without any problem, I could see the silhouette of all the trees all the way to the ground. And uh, that was the first time that fear struck me. That was the first time that I actually felt fear. Um, I I, I think I'd been kind of of excusing. I couldn't excuse away the noise I heard earlier today uh, or that day, but... Everything else I think I had probably, you know, made excuses for, and it could be this, and you're seeing things, blah, blah, blah. But when I looked out there, and as clear as day, whatever it was, was not there. And that's when fear hit me. And um, so I also, you know, I do bow hunt, but I also have guns. And I went and I got got my rifle, my hunting rifle out. And it's a a large caliber. And I thought, you know, at least it's better than my silly bow and i looked out and there was nothing to see there was nothing out there and the one thing that i can say is is that that trail that leads up to that clear cut up to the the back logging road you know when you hunt um I think most hunters joke about squirrels because squirrels will drop uh, pine cones and they'll break sticks. And, and after a while, you're convinced a, a deer is walking up on you. It's this squirrel throwing, you know, dropping pine cones and you're trying to get the nut, the, uh, the pine nuts out of it. And you kind of get an idea about the size. Uh, if, if you hear a stick snap, you kind of get an idea about how big that stick was. So, you know, if if if, if you break a stick that's about half the size of a pencil, you can kind of gauge how thick that was. You just, by the pitch and everything, you, you kind of figure out, it's that is a small stick. And there was something up on that trail, and it broke something I would guess was an inch to two inches thick. It was a loud pop. It was not a wood knock. It was not a wood knock. That's kind of the Everybody talks about wood knocks these days. That is not what I heard. This was a breaking of a stick and whatever that stick was, it was big. And I could tell that something was moving away up that trail. And I have to admit, I was kind of shook up. Um, I've been in the, I've, I've worked in the woods uh, right out of high school. I've, uh, I've logged. Uh, I set chokers uh, right out of high school and uh, found out that there was no money doing that. So I, I started mill riding and then even I've done a lot of, Heavy, heavy industrial jobs, a lot of which were out in the woods and, uh, being in the mountains, being in the woods has never bothered me. Cougars don't bother me. Bears, uh, you know, I think it's just awesome to be able to see that stuff. This time I can honestly say fear hit me. And, um, because this was outside of what was natural, uh, what was normal. And, uh, eventually I crawled in bed and, um, I honestly, I laid there on the bed with rifle, uh, there on the floor right next to me, fell asleep. And I remember look, cause I grabbed my phone and I looked when I heard it and it was four 30 and at four 30 in the morning, I heard just outside of the house, that gibberish that I was, that I had heard, uh, previously uh, that the previous year, there was that gibberish <coughs> excuse me. And I, I, I slowly got up, grabbed my rifle. I could not tell exactly where it was coming from, but I could hear it. it. was just outside the house. And whatever it was, and again, it sounded like somebody playing with words. It did not sound like a discernible language. Um, again, if you could imagine some, if you were to ask your uh, a 10-year-old kid, you know, make up a language. Just go make up a language and act like you're talking to your buddy. Uh, If you can imagine just that garbled playing with sounds and words, that's what it sounded like. But as I listened, it sounded irritated. It didn't sound casual. It did not. The the, the cadence was a little bit uh, quicker, a little bit sharper. And whatever it was did sound irritated. And uh, so I sat there. With my rifle, and I was kind of looking out what windows that I had. I had a window in my room, window in the living room, and then the sliding glass door. And I kept peeking out. Never, never did see anything. I could hear it, and then as, as you could just start to see daylight. That's about 4:30, about the time you could start seeing the tree line, because the sun was starting to come up. Whatever this was, you could tell that it was moving further and further away from the house. And by the time you could actually see things, to where I felt <laughs> brave enough to step outside, this thing had moved up in the trees, and and I didn't I didn't hear it anymore. And um, that was the last that was the last thing instant whatever you want to call it uh, for that year, and, and really for me, that was that was the last thing that uh, that I had. Um, there, uh, it was about a year later, maybe half a year later, there was a, there was a, a very nice uh, gentleman, older gentleman that moved into the, uh, two bedroom, um, right next to, uh, uh, right, right next to me, uh, neat guy, uh, retired, um, uh, Coast Guard and, uh, real quiet. And, uh, he just wanted to live his days out in peace and out in the woods and, uh, there was a couple times and again, this is a year later. So once again, we're back in August ish and uh, I would come home and then the next morning I'd see him and he'd say, Hey, I heard somebody up in the woods. Talking is, you know, are there any houses? No, there's no houses back there. What does it sound like? Well, you know what? It didn't sound like normal language. It just sounded like somebody was just gibberish and I never heard it again. But he, he told me that twice that that's what he heard. And, um, uh, wasn't too long after that, that, uh, I moved out of there. Um, uh, I ended up getting married, uh, to my absolute best friend. And, um, again, uh, Tom, uh, you know, I contacted you because I was really hoping that, uh, maybe you could shed a little bit of light, um, just on what I've experienced. Uh, I, th- I think, you know, in my mind, I've always wanted to have an encounter, but of course in my mind, I've always imagined, you know, some big grassy meadow and, you know, big hairy dark figure walks out of the timber. You know, I, I think uh, some groups call that a class A sighting, um, but I don't. I don't consider this that. I, I consider that there was a lot of little things that, uh, in fact, I use the uh, term with you: the totality of the evidence. Uh,
1: yeah, we did yeah. talk about that.
2: You know, you 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 you, you, you hear you, you see this. Well, that in itself is really not enough. Uh, you hear that. Well, that in itself really. You put the totality of the evidence together, and you say, okay, here's this. Here's now a picture based on all of these, these these uh, these situations. And what do I have? And uh, I would love to tell you that I've got photos. I would love to tell you that I had this awesome sighting. But that is uh, that's what happened to me. And uh,
1: let, let me uh, let me interject real quick. Yes. Um. Is it okay to mention your the reason you're a trained observer? Is it okay to mention that you you also know. had a law enforcement background? Correct. Okay. So you're again you're you're trained to observe. You know we've talked about you take the evidence. In its totality, it adds up to something. And and one of the graphic analogies that I use, kind of a picture analogy, I should say, that everybody can kind of, you know, sort of comprehend is the guy that was the lookout on the Titanic. He sees this little piece of ice popping up on the surface of of a very calm ocean, knowing full good and well that it represents a much larger, ominous, threatening reality just below the surface and that's what you have and this is what so many people i would say probably the vast majority of the bigfoot encounters are exactly that the creature is not seen now you did see that shadow and uh will's going to send you some information he asked for your um email address while we were
3: there there's you know, while you're giving a description if i could make a comment um you know these like you mentioned these groups they, they label different sightings and all this stuff I, I think a lot of that's nonsense you either have a direct encounter in other words the thing standing in front of you or right. everything else is kind of a peripheral thing there's lots of things yes. that happen where you don't see the creature so i, I try to keep things simple But a lot of what you, you know,
1: seen, you, know you, men- you mentioned a lemur that'll <laughs> look like a lemur. yeah. And after we got off the phone, I actually called the wildlife safari. I'm going to get Forrest to weigh in on this. And I asked him, hey, do you guys ever get lemurs or the howlers or my favorite, the gibbons? Do they ever escape? She says, no, we have them surrounded by water and they hate water. Oh. Um, and plus they're the lemurs are small compared to even the one that you saw. You said it's very, very husky. Yeah. Um, Forrest, what are your thoughts as far as, you know, jumping like a lemur and are are they, you know, are our lemurs confined? Lemurs are gibbons, you know, and howler are monkeys? Uh, is water, a you know, a moat, a good deterrent for them?
4: Uh, yeah I would think so they don't <clears throat> they don't particularly uh, lemurs don't particularly care for money i can't uh for water but uh uh howlers, monkeys, and such as that no, I, don't, I don't I don't know how their proclivity for uh, uh, water is if it were a macaque they would be in the water. They love water uh, but back to the lemurs uh the largest lemur is an injury injury and um, uh, and first off, all lemurs are limited. And the natural world, other than the ones that you get in zoos and pets, um, are limited to Madagascar exclusively. <clears throat> that is their natural habitat, and they occur there. And uh, like about from three inches to the indri indri, which is the largest uh, lemur, and that is only stands maybe three feet tall and only weighs 10 pounds.
3: And they've they've got a pretty prominent tail, right?
4: Yes, they do. And uh, they they are a tailed... (coughs) Excuse me. I am so sorry. They're on the lower order of uh, simians. And um, they have tails. Um, But the one thing about all your um, monkeys and... Your chimpanzees, to a certain degree, not so much the, the gorillas, and that has to do with the, their absolute massive size, they can jump enormous distances with just their back legs. I mean, they just have uh, an enormous amount of uh, power. And I think you, we've already talked about, you know, the fast twitch and slow twitch muscles. Um, monkeys just have when they when they exert a force they have really no more they don't have a whole lot of control over over that and uh so when they're jumping they can just jump enormous distances and uh that we would never be able to accomplish and they can do it from just a a sitting you know stance and um uh, it's amazing it really is now if I could say something, interject um, her and I know that wasn't part of the question, but there was something that you said that when you were walking that you heard um, this growl or, or, or sound, anyway, and it sounded like it was like about three feet from you. And um, the one thing that I, you know, the attenuation of sound waves is usually affected by materials that it has to go through. And that will block it. That's why you have soundproofing in rooms and such as that. But you look at animals like elephants. They make these low rumbling sounds. You can hear them six miles. It doesn't make any difference what's in between them, uh, between you and the uh, the elephant. They can hear each other uh, for over six miles distance. And what I think, and this, again, is just my opinion, um, I think these low rumbling sounds that uh, they make, I think can carry a distance and almost give you that effect that they may be several feet from you, maybe several hundred feet from you. I don't know. I don't don't have one to study, but I think that they may be able to emit these low growling rumbling sounds and make it sound like... uh, they're right there on you, when we, and we do know about infrasound, and so and that effect that people actually feel it. I've told you that uh, you know the growls that I've heard. I've actually felt it. It's it's like a vibration.
3: We talked to our and so our other anthropologist, John, about infrasound and primates, and he says absolutely it's possible.
4: Oh yeah, yeah.
3: Donnie, I want to interject something as well. My
1: buddy John and I were up in an area well this is where we were last september but much further up the ridge line than we had gone uh you mean you know where the meadow is mm-hmm. well about two miles further on and um you know i've i would gotten out of the truck to take a look at some bear scat in the middle of the road i'm looking at this i'm wow look at that man that's a
3: big bear <laughs> And he it was picture. it was bear
1: <laughs> yeah 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 and my buddy goes around to the back of the truck and within a nanosecond he's yelling get in the truck get in the truck we need to get out of here I, I'm I'm good with that uh, we'll get in the truck and I'll find out what the problem is once we're on the road he said he he was in the he'd gone to the back of the truck and he said he heard this low growl it was like it was projected right out of the forest at him and like, it was just right next to him and it had an intensity and a sense of emotion of anger and, uh, you know, disapproval to it. That, that's the way he described it. I had also heard one, but I was standing in front of the truck and it mingled with the engine noise and me being who I am. I just, you know, I just kind of didn't pay any attention to it. Well, but you remember, anyway, remember me Donnie telling you that
3: I got growled at too, as a teenager.
1: Yes. Yeah, you did. I've nothing uh, else. You
3: said it. Nothing else that I've ever heard before or since. And Donnie, I've also heard the chattering, so I can relate to that.
2: The, okay. okay. Um, again, still looking for answers here. So the chattering that you've heard, what what did it sound like to you?
3: Well, a group of us were up camping by Mount Rainier a number of years back, and and we were sitting around the fire talking. And my brother-in-law kind of leans over and he says, "I hear something." So we stepped away from the fire. All of us did. And maybe a hundred feet above us you could hear uh, there were two distinct individuals one was making what sounds like you know people would hear chimps making from television shows sound just like that kind of hooting the other okay. one was maybe 20 feet from it to the right and it was making a gibberish sound it was it was like you described exactly like a, a language it was made up no distinct words or anything like that nothing that I was familiar with um, it sounded agitated. In fact, the, the other one that sounded chimp-like was actually much more agitated than the other individual, but they, they kept this going on for some time. Huh.
2: You know, um, again, I've, uh, I've, I've enjoyed, uh, uh, gleaning what information I could. The few times I've been able to talk with, uh, Tom about this. Um, the example, the example I give him when we, we talk about the totality, the, uh, uh, evidence or the circumstances is uh, in the academy. They uh, they bring up that term, the totality of the uh, evidence, and they give the example. You know, they say uh, if you find if you find somebody with a spoon, is that illegal? Absolutely not. If you find somebody with a cotton ball, is that illegal? No, nope, not that either. How about a syringe? No, nope, there's diabetics out there. How about a butane lighter? Nope. Nope. Those are all very legal items How about tinfoil. Nope. That's, that's, that's not illegal either. But when you put all that together, mm-hmm. the totality of the evidence, um, just about every court in America sees that as drug paraphernalia. It's putting them together. And what his, what has uh, what I've struggled with is about the time I feel kind of brave enough to, uh, to to tell this to somebody, um, it's only because I continue to go over all of these little pieces, and I I try to explain them away, and I can't. I cannot do it. And uh, my wife, again, she is absolutely best friend, uh, greatest lady in the world, and and I've noticed, you know, even recently, she's she's stopped asking about it. And every time I'm getting to the point, it's, it's exhausting because I, I try to uh, explain what happened, how real it was, the 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 things that I saw, and I can never bring it complete justice. And I have to admit, I'm now to the point of uh, kind of just exhausted, um, uh, just because I want answers. I I really do. I want those bright line answers. Um, it's it's great to hear things that uh, uh, collaborate. Uh, you know, some some of the elements of my my story collaborate with, uh, things that you all have, uh, encountered or seen or, or, uh, but, uh, but, but still it's, it's, it's one of those situations where to this day, um, I keep looking for answers. Uh, whatever did happen, um, it was real, but I, I just, I, I can't nail it down I can't nail it down to anything and when I put the whole thing together I only come up with one with one conclusion and and um, and that's hard to share with people because you always get the eyebrows, you can you get the half smirks and and you think, you know what, it's not even worth telling the story. But uh, but there it is. Well you know two you No, know, I do want to have... Oh go ahead Tom.
1: Well, I was just going to say real quick this is for everybody out there who listens to this show or any show for that matter and has had a similar type of experience we get a lot of people who contact us we contact them and they don't want to share the experience they just want the answers mm-hmm. and I want to and by the way this is where I was well five years ago when I first contacted <laughs> you right. and and I and you said, well, come on the show. And I thought, uh. and I thought, well, okay, if that's the price I got to pay, that's the price I got to pay for answers. Because just like Donnie and and hundreds and hundreds of other people, I want answers. And so hopefully this will encourage those who are sort of on the edge, they're on the fence, to go ahead and reach out to us, and you know we we will give you the best. Information we have and we're also very respectful of people's anonymity mm-hmm. remaining anonymous um so anyway i just well, i just wanted to get that out there but donnie i wanted to ask you there was that game trail and will and i were texting we had this same exact thought at the same time
3: <laughs> how big was the trail how wide
1: huh? yes
2: <laughs> that that trail was about two foot wide it was Very, and it was very comfortable uh, to walk, to walk down my, my initial thought was it was an elk trail. Now elk have hooves. I think everybody knows that. Right. And they have a tendency to tear up. I was just going to ask you that if they were chewed up. It it was smooth. Okay. It was very, very smooth. And I remember thinking one one time, of course, if you, if I, if I could just summarize, when, when I heard the, the, this sound, I hate calling it a vocalization. Um, there's, so there's so much nonsense. T- there's, there's so much nonsense now. Um, Tons of it. Uh, you know, I, I read, I, I, read, I enjoy reading the stories, and um, uh, some of the stories you read, and you're like, okay, that's, that's plausible, and the other stories, you're like, okay, that guy's screwed up. Um, but there's so much nonsense now about what people uh, you know, now somebody smells something that they've never smelled before and they've had an
3: encounter. Right.
2: And um but I didn't put this whole thing together until I heard the sound because it was it was it was so far out in left field to to my reality that I, I started I started thinking outside of the box, what was that? And then when I, when I saw that image, that, that, that silhouette in the woods, that was when I kind of pulled all of these pieces together. That's when I, I thought about the, the thing. I, I mentioned lemur only because that's the way it jumped. Um, I'm under the impression, uh, Forrest, I'm under the impression the thing was like, like maybe on hands and knees. Um, I wasn't looking at it I was looking at the deer running and then my in my peripheral vision this thing just shot off the ground and its arms were up in the air but its wrists were dangling but it had that kind of that if you can imagine when you if you've ever seen lemurs how they kind of jump how they have their arms up in the air uh, that's why I, I use the term lemur but whatever the saying was it was pretty husky um, I'm not going to say chimp but uh, Lemur is like an exaggerated squirrel, is mean, from from the pictures I've seen, but uh, but uh, when I when I put the the everything together, and I start grabbing this and that and well what about this what about the at 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 it was very similar to that that gibberish chattering that I heard, and then I remember that trail, because you asked about the trail the thing that really kind of. I can tell you two things about it. the The trail was very smooth. Now, again, in August, the the dirt around Western Oregon. Everybody thinks Western Oregon it rains all the time. It does, but in August, um, there and that's actually considered Southern Oregon. the The dirt's more like cement, mm-hmm. so there was no tracks, nothing like that. But two things that I could say about that: that it was probably. Let me see here. Let's see. That's two feet. Mm, maybe not. Maybe. Twenty inches. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm looking at it, My kitchen table here, maybe twenty inches wide. But the one thing that when you walked down that, I noticed was it was slightly uncomfortable to walk because there the center of the trail was probably three inches deeper than the shoulders of the trail. So when you are walking, you were. What do they call that? Is that is that called pronated? Uh, joggers, they they get shoes because they walk uh, like on the inside of their foot or something like that, and I th- it it was uncomfortable to walk because your right foot you would be um, would be tor would be tipped toward the middle, mm-hmm. and then when you when you when you put your left foot down, then your left foot would be tipped toward the middle. Well, and I remember it, even though it's nice and as smooth as it was, it was a li- unless you were walking dead center of that of that trail. It was a little bit uncomfortable.
3: A couple of things. I remember that. A couple of things. Um, in well-used areas, a Sasquatch will make a trail. And they're they're rare to okay. find, but they will make them. The other thing is they walk differently. The mechanics of their, their locomotion is different than humans. So yeah. they walk with their feet in a straight line, almost, well, I won't say pigeon-toed, but it's been described almost like that. Um, the weight seems to be on the inside of the foot rather than the way ours is. Oh, really? So that could account for the way that trail was set up, if that's what made it.
2: It 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 was a definite, like I say, when I walked on it, it, if you walked dead center, like you're trying to walk a, like if you're trying to walk down a fog line, it was fine. It there was there was no issue. It was a nice, smooth, very smooth, comfortable trail. But if you if you got off that just a little bit, you really knew it because because it really kind of tipped your foot toward the inside. Yeah.
3: So the way that young one jumped on I'll say a juvenile because of the size, um, I, I've read numerous accounts of people seeing them do that exact same thing with the hand, arm posture and everything. Um, and we do know the adults can jump 20 feet in, in mm. one leap. So, uh, that, that all fits the slapping of the house. What they're trying to do is they're trying to get your, they trying to count heads. So when you come outside, they're trying to see, because we're a threat to them. They want to see how many people are in that dwelling.
2: Huh. Never thought of that. I, I, and again, I just thought at the time, I thought it was just kids. I thought kids were, uh, they, I, they, cause uh, even though those buildings were locked up, um, you know, if you were a kid, you could go out there, you know, with your girlfriend or whatnot and you can you big, big, uh, big uh, orchards and uh, big grassy uh, yards and, and the driveway's long enough that if somebody came down you would you would see him coming so that that was my train of thought i wasn't thinking anything other than kids were screwing around
3: one of the things they'll um, do too with motion sensor lights is <clears throat> they'll test limits and they'll lay sticks where the lights triggered okay huh. they're very intelligent
2: i you know I, again uh tom i have to thank you because we've we've had a few conversations and we've kind of batted some ideas around um coming from law enforcement uh when i when i think of when i said that the thing i am assuming this thing was sitting on the ground um because it wasn't like there was a ten-foot structure, you know, mass out there. That was, it was. Uh, if if I were to guess, this thing was sitting on the ground. And if, and I and I mentioned that I thought I could see this kind of a silhouette of a head and shoulders. And if that is what I saw, I would say that was about four and a half. Maybe is eh four and a half. Uh, I don't know. Five feet, maybe five feet, four and a half feet off the ground. So whatever it was, it's was almost like it was sitting. But after speaking with Tom and just really, it's it's actually kind of made me go back and kind of dig this thing up and really go through. I've actually I actually start writing, just jotting notes down, mm-hmm. because I don't want to forget them because it was it was something that was very real. But the one thing that really hit me after kind of rehashing this thing with Tom is, you know, when that thing was, it was squared off to me. And that in itself is, I'm not going to say it was aggressive, but I'm going to say it definitely wasn't worried. No, uh, that's, that's not normal behavior. Um, you know, uh, in law enforcement, uh, you know, I've had situations where, you know, we've, I, you know, we've had people, uh, hiding in the bushes and, you know, we've, we've gone out and caught them, but you know, there's always this, this, Typically, a person will give themselves an out. They will, they'll be quartering to you. They'll be in a position that if they have to run, they're already, their body is already postured for it. Yeah, preloaded to go a particular direction. Whatever this thing was, was squared off to me. And uh, Forrest, what do you think? It was big enough that if it wanted to be aggressive, it could have, yeah. It could have, but it was not. There was no, there was no, uh, there was nothing about me that intimidated this thing. This thing was squared off to me, would not move, and literally, um, absolutely motionless.
3: And there were probably other individuals around there you weren't aware of.
2: Well, that's comfortable. Yeah, they're almost never alone. <laughs> they, they travel
3: and live in groups. Forrest, what do you think? Well, Aggressive well, posture? I,
4: well, <laughs> He's probably not going to like what I say, but I don't necessarily think that's aggressive, Uh, maybe passive-aggressive. Great Apes and monkeys uh, have a marvelous ability, and we discussed this before, about being able to just sit there. And I always call it the Buddha stance. They just sit there. And they can sit like that for hours watching it. And the only thing you'll see is, you know, uh, their eyes moving. And they can sit there undetected very often um, and just watch people go by and <laughs> they do it in the bush all the time. In Africa, they've learned to do that so that the, the natives go on past them and uh, they don't have to have any interaction with them. And they're, they will find some nice secluded, dark place where their coloration will blend right in and they can just sit there. And, um, and I think Bigfoot do the exact same thing Uh, I don't think they're necessarily concerned about our parents and uh, they will just sit there. And I think, you know, we've talked about this before. I think sometimes we're, we're their, uh, we're their TV for them too. I think they are very interested in the, the, the peculiar, what they probably consider peculiar things that we do and uh, are just perfectly happy to sit there and just watch us and wonder what we're doing. Um, I would think that it are a big male that he might be watching you um, to make sure that uh, you might not be anything uh, that he would consider to be a threat to his family. So, um, I mean, I wouldn't have thought that it would have been a real good idea if you walked out there at that point in time. It might not have been a good interaction, but uh, as long as he's just sitting there watching you, I don't think that there is necessarily any uh, harm. You know, directed at you,
2: right? And, and you know, when I said uh, uh, aggression, I I didn't mean that it was being aggressive. I because I think it I think is. if uh, if it wanted to, it definitely could have. But my point my point is, typically, if something wants to watch you, uh, it might be a little bit further up in the tree, uh, uh, maybe a little more. This was it was on the tree line, so it was uh, it was uh, it was probably. Three feet inside the tree line, and it was uh, pretty pretty uh, bare ground. So whatever it was, uh, it sat there, uh, squared off to me. Um, and I guess my point is that whatever it was doing, whatever it was thi- uh, uh, thinking, or if they think um, this thing was not intimidated, uh, was not worried about me at all. Okay? You know, and it, not necessarily being aggressive, but but it was uh, it uh, apparently it had no problem being right there squared off to me and I and I guess that's what I'm trying to say and, and that's actually very common really okay
3: and like I said yeah they, I would
4: have been more concerned if it had stood up and then started swaying right Will yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then you might have had a problem. <laughs>
2: you know. Uh, okay. Because so that
4: act, that action of swaying, is that uh, is very common with primates as well, because what they're doing there is they're working up their aggression. Uh, they're they're agitated and they're working working themselves into an aggressive state.
2: And the Sasquatch okay. does the same thing exactly.
4: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I, I'm just going to throw this out, and I mean this is uh, this is one of the things that I've been. That I've been trying to work through myself is as you go through. I, I have my own job, and uh, and uh, uh, we we take care of the crossings on on a railroad, and uh, and so it's not that I can I really have the time to devote a lot of energy to this. So you you take the uh, the the path of least resistance, which is oftentimes YouTube. Or uh, whatever you can find readily uh, through Google on the internet, and as I go through and I look for these these answers, back oh back in the 70s when I was uh, early 70s when I was in elementary school, we had a guy come to our school and he he showed us some casts and of course all the kids thought that was great, but back in that time you either saw it just like what you uh, just like what you said uh, well you either saw it or you were holding a plaster cast it was a uh, There, there was, it it was, it was a pretty definitive. uh, Basically, people either said you're crazy or you actually saw something. Pretty clear cut. Yeah, and then as time has rolled on, somebody hears a loud snap in the woods. Instantly, it's Bigfoot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, well, they say, well, you know, they're wood knocking and monkeys wood knock. And, and so now anytime anybody hears a bump in the forest, they think they have an encounter. Next thing you know, you know, somebody smells something. There's always some sort of a precursor. You know, I have lived in these mountains all my life and I know every smell that comes out of these mountains. Mm-hmm. There's always some sort of a precursor. And next thing you know, it, 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 it seems like those individuals who are interested in bigfoot blah 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 they they it's it's almost like this mass group uh suddenly, suddenly they're experts yeah suddenly i smelled something suddenly the hair oh my goodness the hair was standing on the back of my neck and so there there's an encounter they
0: scared
2: and there's so much noise <laughs> there is so much noise to signal out there it's garbage That it's, it's really hard to cut through it and and, and try to find something that is that you can you can pin to the ground and say this is reality and this is somebody looking for attention. Exactly. And, you know, in in law enforcement, you know, we you would see that. Uh, I don't know how many times we've taken uh, some young girl to the hospital because uh, you know she and she's acting pat, passed out. We get her in the hospital and the doctor goes up to her and puts a big old sternal rub on her, and boy, she explodes off that gurney and she's just looking for attention.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, they don't like that. You know, as a police officer, you know, you're grabbing, come on, are you okay? Hey, they're breathing. They're not moving. Yeah, let the doctor do a sternal rub on her and watch Watch how fast they come off that gurney. It's quite entertaining.
3: You know, so, I, when I was taking my psych courses at WSU, they talked about that, uh, that there are people out there who, regardless of whether it's a positive or a negative experience, they crave that attention and they'll go to any length to get it.
2: Yes. Yes. They, uh, that was something I did enjoy about law enforcement is you start learning about kind of what makes people tick and you find out that, uh, like, uh, firebugs, pyromaniacs, uh, you know, the, uh, the FBI, uh, has a statistic statistically pyromaniacs are, uh, they are, uh, just to be blunt, uh, oftentimes they end up with some sort of, uh, child exploitation, Further down the line in their oh, no. path of, yeah, and it's 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 wild how there are certain things that will come up. In in and s- some of those things are people they want the attention. Just like you said, it, good, bad, or indifferent, it doesn't matter as long as their name was attached to it. And somehow, we caught a uh, a fire starter up in Seattle, and the FBI got involved, and they said. All we want you to do is go out. And when you go to these uh, fires, they were setting churches on fire and just go through the crowd and just start taking as many pictures as you can. And so at the time I was a reserve officer. And so I did. I, I was the guy with the camera and I was running around, taking just take pictures of the crowd. And there were other fires in the greater Seattle area and uh, other officers were doing the same thing. And after about a month, uh, FBI had somebody in custody and they had gone through and they had found this same guy in these pictures and he was looking, you know, he, there was something about starting with something small, like a match and watching mm-hmm. it grow. And it did something to him. And, uh, yeah, they caught him. And he just, he wanted, he, he, he wanted the attention, but he didn't want, he, and of course he didn't want to get caught because you're going to go, you get the silver bracelets, uh, pretty quick if you get caught. But so anyway, um, Tangent, and I apologize, but uh, the, the point is, as as I try to go through and I try to find this information out, I find that there is so much nonsense. Well, you're um, not
3: alone. I hear it time and time again from people who contact me, and they say they've had to wade through all of this garbage out there. And yeah. I, I would say <clears throat> a lot of it, excuse me, if you see it on YouTube or in, in social media, 99% of it's garbage. Agreed.
2: And, and again, someone like me, um, you know, I've got my own uh, endeavors in life, uh, and it's like so. You you take that, that path of least resistance. You you go to Google. You go to YouTube. You're trying to find something, and um, and, and and it's tough. But I do. I have to admit, uh, Tom, I I value our conversations uh, uh, very insightful, and um, can't say I'm any further off than I was before, but. Um, it's I, I would have to say at least my position um, where I stand on what Bigfoot may be that is slowly changing, and uh, I still believe it's uh, it's something that's very real, and um, what it is.
1: No. It's yeah, something- no, no, that's that, that's good. And, and after a while, this is something that Will and I look for you know, there's a there's a huge advantage that we have running this this podcast because we get weekly people, we get witnesses and at over time and Will's interviewed thousands of people you start to see very repeating patterns over and over and these are repeating patterns from people that don't know each other, people that don't want to maybe come on the show. These are credible encounters. Right. And it really does build up your knowledge of certain things. You just, they, they kind of click. And, and going back to, you know, what the FBI recommended, taking lots of pictures, that also works for our topic. <laughs> I tell people area, there's
3: no such thing as too much information, regardless. Of, I've had stuff sitting in, in yes. folders for decades. And then all of a sudden, a piece of information will come in and it puts the puzzle together and it's like, holy cow something i thought was maybe worthless is a big piece of this. Yes.
2: Yeah, I. it read... goes
1: back to the repeating patterns. Take lots of pictures, take lots of pictures, take lots of pictures, and you have to be Over skeptical. Time, you never know. Everything, you yeah. know.
3: The last thing the last thing on your mind should be Bigfoot when something happens. You know, you want to ferret out all the other possibilities first. Then if you're left with nothing, then it's very possible it's that. But does it fit the other pieces that are out there right I guess it's very much like police work you're, you're investigating
2: it, it, it is it is and you know so, so often uh you do you get to I've I have done so many interviews uh with individuals and you after a while you get a uh, you get a feel a feel for when somebody's uh, uh telling the truth uh one one of the uh, I, I will remember it probably till the day I die I was uh I was testifying in court and there was a guy and there was one element of this particular crime. It wasn't a big deal. I didn't take notes on it. It just wasn't that big of a deal. But, um, uh, but uh, of course, uh, the defendant, he comes in, he's got his hair cut and he's cleaned. He's got he's She's shaved. And the, he, the, the, uh, defense attorney has him in a three piece suit. And so we, we, we get into this, the little, this little detail, the, uh, his attorney brings it up and says, well, what about this? And so, I explain. I said, "Well, I didn't take notes on this, but uh, from what I saw, it was boom, 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 boom. is this, this, and this." And then they get him on stand, and he he describes it, and you can see him. I, I sat back and I watched him, and I could see his eyes kind of searching around. He's kind of looking at the ceiling, and his eyes going around. Uh, a lot of his a uh, lot of fillers. You're know, like, "Uh, and uh, well, uh, you can you can see him developing this story." You can hear it. I simply, I was there. I simply just said, "This is this is what I saw, uh, Your Honor." Oh, boom, this guy—you could just hear him just kind of weaving this tale, and and it was uh, what you would consider uncomfortably long and um, very, uh, very much a sort of a uh, uh, stratosphere type view of the situation. And when when he is done, the uh, the judge says something, and he, he looked at me and he looked at the uh, the defendant, and he goes. He says we don't have any uh, true documentation on this, but I will say one thing. And he turned to the defendant and he said, "Your testimony just doesn't ring with the truth." And I remember thinking to myself, "Can you say that, <laughs> <laughs> Judge?" Can say what they want Did to. You though? do that, but I remember that it's just your your testimony just doesn't ring with the truth. And uh, so much of this area, so much of uh, the whole Bigfoot. Uh, uh, area is it's, it seems like there's about five, me, uh, 10% might be a, a big number. 5% of the information out there, you look at it and it's just like, you know what? There's some truth there. I see some, some positive elements and the other 90 to 95% of it. It just doesn't ring with the truth. And it's so hard as a, uh, as a person who has his own job to cut through that. It's hard. And, uh, and try to yeah and try, and try to get down to the stuff and say and, and where does my story fit into all of this?
3: Well it's got a lot of some I, I and so what I do I've, I've have been having Tom do the interviews when we talk to people and, and I listen very carefully. and everything you've said, I, I can pick out incidents, several of them, you know per item that are identical to other things I've heard before. So to me, it's, you know, over time and geography, if you get consistency, then it's pretty likely what you're hearing is the exact truth.
2: Well, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, wish I, I wish I had uh, bright line answers. I really do. Um, well,
3: I've been doing this 49 years and I started out doing the same thing as a teenager in the early 70s looking for answers because we found tracks and then two years later I walked in on two of these things uh very close range and you know <clears throat> it changed me permanently I, I wished I would have never had that experience because I used to really enjoy fishing and hunting and ever since then um you know I go out with my head on a swivel so uh, I've been searching for answers the more questions I get answered the more questions come up
2: my, my dad, he's passed. And my dad, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I asked him, I said, Dad, is there a Bigfoot? Uh, I, I wanted to know. And uh, my my dad, um, who, um, if, if there was ever a hero, if I ever had a hero, it would be my dad. And he was just a, he was a quiet, big man. And he said, Donald, if there was a, uh, he, he thought there was. He, he thought there was. And he mm-hmm. said, I'm sure you've walked right past him and you've never known it. And Correct. I've always taken I've always taken great comfort in that because uh, I've always lived in in the, the in the woods. I've always lived in the mountains, um, close enough to town where you know it's you know a thirty to a forty-five minute drive to work. But but uh, typically I've lived where a lot of people like to vacation. I, I'm that typically usually that far out in the woods, and uh, I say I've seen a lot of cougar, um, a lot of bear, uh, and and. I've drawn a lot of comfort in the, in the, the belief that I've probably walked right past Cougars oh, yeah. possibly right past Bigfoot mm-hmm. possibly. And, uh, you know, I've never, I've never got it. You know, if I've ever got a scratch from being up in the wood, it was because I did something dumb and <laughs> I fell down in a, in a bees nest or something. But, uh, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to ramble, but, uh, I'm still I'm still good with uh, being in the woods. Uh, I don't. Uh, it doesn't spook me. Although, um, whatever whatever Bigfoot is, um, um, I don't want to say there's some concern there, but uh, there's definitely. A, I can't. Uh, from what I heard, the the rage that I heard, that right there was a, I would have to say it was a turning point in my belief system in which whatever this thing is i'm going to say has emotion
3: and, and I it's a good thing to be aware of what's out there and yep. and to be cognizant of their the fact they're an apex predator you know the, mm-hmm. one, the one thing we have going for us is they don't particularly like humans or like human contact um, that doesn't mean don't be safe though right no i agree I agree. So, well,
1: Donnie, um, again, you can take comfort in the fact, and you've said something that we've said all along, and that is, you know, people say, "Well, I've never seen one. I've been out in the woods with my whole life." No, but I'm pretty sure that if you've been out there, there's a good chance that they've seen you. So, with that said, I think we're going to wrap up today's show.
3: Wait, Donnie, ask- you've been an oh yeah I'm sorry. excellent guest. First, yeah, no, do you have any great guest and?
4: No, I don't think so. Uh, enjoyed listening to the story.
3: Okay. Sorry, Tom. I didn't mean to walk over you there. I wanted yeah, to no really no, <laughs> ask Forrest if she had any final thoughts. All
1: right. Well, listen, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this section. And uh, Donnie, thanks again. And then you and I are going to stay in touch, I'm sure. And one of these days, we're going to go out and have coffee and chat some more.
2: Yeah, that's a uh... I, I've enjoyed this, and uh, again, uh, it's out there, and if anybody's listening, uh, and again, if you care to even listen to my story or even consider it, it's uh, uh, this venue here is nice because uh, I, I can say uh, both William and Tom have been uh, very supportive. I think they've been objective. Um, they've given some good insight on some things, and, and uh, um, it's like I say, uh, if you have something and you're not sure about um it's tough because when you uh, even some of the people you trust most uh you tell them the story and you expend the energy and then they look at you and you can just you can just tell they're rolling their eyes you just feel it and uh that was not the situation here and i'm very glad that uh, i had the opportunity to meet both of you uh Forrest, uh it was also good to speak with you for what little we did and uh thank you thank you for this day
3: and Donnie, we'll stay in touch. I'm going to send you some things, and, you know, by all means, any questions you have for me, I'll do my best to answer for you.
2: Beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate
3: yeah, it. Yeah,
1: stay on after the show for just a minute, and we'll chat about something.
3: All right, we'll do it. All right, folks, that'll do it for this segment. Stand by for the third part. In Bigfoot History. Near Stevens Pass, Washington, September 17, 1967, Clarence Fox, with a group of ninth grade students on a hike, found a pile of conifer twigs 4 feet high and 6 to 8 feet in diameter in a cave on the Cascade Crest Trail north of Stevens Pass. On the way home, they smelled a bad odor and found a few poor 17-inch tracks long. The next day, one of the students, Lynn Madden, went back and made a cast of a clear track made since the previous day. Mr. Fox heard that members of the Alpine Club had reported similar tracks the same day about two miles away. Alright, welcome back from the break everyone. Tom, we have lots of questions today, don't we?
1: We have a lot of very excellent questions, and I apologize. I don't think we're going to get through all of them. Keep them coming, though, because uh, we're going to we're going to tackle them uh, on the next episode. And uh, so, thank you very much. Superb questions, as always. And uh, real real quick, I just want to say, if you like the show, let us know. Click the like, and if you want to support the show, let us know. Uh, you can support us through patreon and as always we have a link in the description
3: yeah Milo was gonna join us today but I haven't heard from him so he's been having health issues kind of up and down and he said he was feeling much better this past week but may have something may have come up this morning so go ahead and Tom let's go ahead and delve into the first question
1: all right so the first question is uh, just a few questions here, and this is uh, somebody who thanks us for a very inform- informative show every week. And uh, Will, I like this question, and I wonder if we can answer it. We don't have to give locations, but there is a situation where there's an extremely large number of these creatures uh, that were encountered. So the question is, first question what's the largest number of bigfoot ever sighted together any idea of the maximum minimum typical size of a group
3: well the typical size of the group is anywhere from four to six individuals that's kind of average Uh, of course that can be different depending on the group and and, uh, dynamics so but that seems to be the typical number uh the largest one that i was aware of now these were different groups that banded together temporarily and they will do that sometimes uh, the number was 45 individuals.
1: you know what that represents? Trouble. <laughs> yes. 45 too many. Capital T. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you're looking at them up on the ridgeline, and you're like, I think it's time to leave. So, um, Visions of Custer. You,
3: Visions yes, of Custer.
0: That sounds,
4: like a, that sounds like a scene from Planet of the Apes.
3: <laughs> yeah. it was. It was a bad situation
1: yeah okay and the same person wants to know do they ever really travel alone excuse me Uh, also any idea of their
3: likely maximum age no idea on the likely maximum age forrest might be able to speak to that you know using comparative anthropology but uh, as far as traveling alone they may but typically they're not very far from the other members they will hunt alone sometimes and also in groups. But, um, you know, if you see one, typically there are others not too far away.
1: Can I, uh, comment on that real quick? Will, the area that you and I were at, um, you know, where the group was at last September, I was in that area about a month afterwards with, Oh no, I take that back. It was actually in, in July before you guys came out.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: we had, found the footprint of that little juvenile right and as we're looking at it uh, a friend of mine kurt and i we heard screams off in the distance two of them from so from from our vantage point they would be separated by about 60 degrees probably 400 yards maybe maybe more um and a lot of screaming going on so we decided to get in the truck and leave and and i had a audio recorder And it picked up, like, as the truck was driving off, one of them walked over, and I think it inspected the uh, recorder that we had placed out there. So you never know. They can be right next to you, and you don't know it.
3: If I were to hazard a guess, I would say the screaming was, you know, the sentry or sentries announcing your presence.
1: Could be, yeah.
3: I don't know. Forrest,
4: what do you think? Yeah, I think you're probably correct. You know, and I think they probably use whistles and stuff uh, uh, too as a, a means to alert. You know, like that what happened with Chuck the other uh, that night out there on the all uh, when he went out to check that all platform. Uh, I think that uh, whistling uh, can alert them too uh, to the presence of humans or, or pr- other predators. Or you know. So I think they use different sounds for uh, different types of alerts and uh, communication. Right, right.
3: What are your thoughts about um, maximum age span?
4: Well, you know, the maximum age on uh, gorillas and uh, chimpanzees is usually 60, uh, uh, 40 to 60. Let me let me put it that way, because uh, in the the most generally it's in the lower range. Uh, you do have, uh, and I'm, um, like, uh, Coco, the gorilla, the one that was so, um, predominant in the uh, news for so long with the sign language and such, she led to be 46. Uh, she actually had a another male gorilla that, uh, had learned sign, uh, sign language too, uh, as well. And, uh, he didn't even make it that long. Um, they have, and I may, I, I'm just trying to remember through my memory here, that I think they have a 60-year-old gorilla somewhere in a zoo. The likelihood that they would actually live that long in the wild, uh, I think that probably the lower median uh, grouping would be more the average on wild gorillas and chimpanzees as well. The, actually, the age on uh, chimpanzees and gorillas is about the same as far as the, the limit. So I'm going to say that the sixties would be the upper, upper limit. And then, uh, but 40 to 50 is probably more the, the median range.
3: Let me ask you a question. And this is uh, in accordance with a couple of listeners who've made comments about, you know, we talk about chimps and gorillas and they, and they think, well, what's that got to do with Bigfoot? Um, what's your take on that? Why would we talk about chimps and gorillas?
4: well first off look at them i mean what you get as uh people uh their descriptions of bigfoot what do they look like they look less human and more like a gorilla or a chimpanzee uh yes they share some traits with us and just like chimps and gorillas they probably act uh, a whole lot like humans um i mean you can watch chimpanzees you can watch gorillas and you just see human traits and all of them first off we're all primates so therefore we're going to share traits even down into your lower order of monkeys and uh uh, simians they're all going to share certain traits with us and but i mean when you look at a bigfoot and look at the descriptions of bigfoot what is the first thing that comes to your mind gorilla Mm -hmm. you know so um i mean you're going to have to make comparisons there because that's the that's where you. That's a good. It's a good starting point. Let's say that.
3: Yeah, in the absence of direct observation, we have to make assertions based on what other primates that are similar would do.
4: Correct. Correct. And and I don't know any of us that have got one hiding in that we've got hidden in our basement. So uh, and uh, I'm not volunteering for that job. I don't so, think I um, want one there
3: either. <laughs> <laughs> big stinky big poop not a good thing i mean yeah you need one of those snow shovels you know to clean up after them <laughs> okay that went off track a bit tom what's the next question <laughs> <laughs>
1: all right yeah you get uh, visions of uh, harry and the henderson's there yeah. uh, <laughs> destroying the inside of the house okay right. this is a uh, same person and again just a very good question I think this is why so few Bigfoots are recovered discovered even when accidents do occur. Uh even if they make a mistake, others are nearby to quickly remove the body or offer help. Uh is that a good assessment? Do we agree with that? And I'd have to say yeah.
3: Yeah, I would think so. They
1: yeah. poof they're gone. We have a, well, uh, we uh, have some good Go ahead
2: for it.
4: No, I was just gonna play and Hanobi, uh, I always get, uh, I don't ever correctly say that, but uh, uh, in Oklahoma, they do have an account, whether it be true or not. I don't know. I uh, wasn't there, um, but it has been a longstanding uh, story that uh, these two brothers actually, they were being harassed by a group of Bigfoot. They actually shot one during the evening time or early morning, and uh, but it was dark when they shot it and um that they had planned on loading it up and taking this uh you know out to you know display to the world you know and at some point in time the other uh troop members came in and removed it so we have you know continual stories about uh, bigfoot removing the bodies
0: yeah, yeah it's,
3: it's, it's, there there are actually stories I'm familiar with too one of them was um you know, were a group of these creatures, I don't know, four or five, six of them were around a dead one that was, they had laid on a boulder. So I don't know if they were doing some kind of a primitive, you know, funeral for lack of a better term, but this was, a, you know, and again, I don't know the veracity of the story, but that's the story. Hmm. Huh.
1: All right. So that's, uh, that's, uh, We've known about this. It's pretty interesting behavior. Okay. Uh, Same guy, or I I don't know if it was a guy or gal. This is Seville. Are there really, or are there any really outstanding videos or photos of Bigfoot that we've seen that would support their existence to a skeptic, either public ones or maybe a private video you've seen? And Will, I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you. (laughs) Yes, there is. Yes plenty um and then the question continues besides pg film uh are there any that we believe are genuine public ones available that you could direct listeners to see
3: well i put one of them on my the last book that i published bigfoot evidence so if you want to take a look at that it's on the cover and then there's some enlarged pictures in the interior
1: and I'm just going to mention also, uh, there's a professor in Russia, Dr. Igor Bortsev. And um, he has a video that was given to him that I thought, you know, just personally, I thought the whole thing, the evidence taken in totality looked like they some kids had certainly filmed one of these things. and And they had the correct response clear across the other side of the globe. It scared the heck out of them so that's
3: you know typically when people if they do get pictures of some kind of these things they're not running to youtube or someplace any social platform to wave the red flag and say look here what i've got uh the typical response i mean and i mean like high 90 percentage um is they don't they don't want to talk about it they don't want to show people oftentimes these pictures or films sit around for decades because they're they don't want to go out with this stuff it's not their intention to get attention from it
1: yeah yeah good point okay next question is are bigfoot confined to well-defined territorial ranges or do they drift would roaming bring them into conflict conflict with other bigfoot groups or are they so spread out the multiple groups in a territory could go undetected for a long time
3: well, they they have large ranges. They are well defined, and uh, but the ranges do overlap. And of course, you might you want to speak on that too. You know, I'm sure other other primates, higher primates, have ranges also, and and the core ranges.
4: Uh, well, I, I think that probably all of the above are true. There's probably some in locations that they probably or isolated and probably ne- may never overlap with other groups. And, uh, you know, the females and males leave and come and go and all that sort of stuff. But then you've got the groups that we know that do overlap. And that is something that occurs in primates all the time. And there's, uh, you know, uh, they have to really in some respects because your females, uh, uh, young females in a group when they come of breeding age and then the males uh, when they become uh, of breeding age, they usually most generally leave the troop, and uh the young males oftentimes will form their own troops and and then they'll go and hang around the edges of a uh, non related troop and in hopes of you know finding females and um <clears throat> the uh The sexual urge and the breeding urge is uh you know quite dominant sometimes even over the 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 feeding habits of these animals so and of course they're going to follow territory that uh, where they can find uh, food and forage and and then it's going to overlap and then you're going to end up with wars and they have that happening in Africa right now and even wars between uh, gorillas and wars and uh, with with chimpanzees and then uh, the chimpanzees seem to be warring amongst themselves themselves uh the only thing i've never heard of is gorillas uh getting into uh disagreements between um you know different groups so uh, i think they just are, are a lot more a passive animals than the chimpanzees which are a very aggressive uh group yeah so. I, think,
3: I think the Sasquatch are spread out enough where they don't really show a lot of aggressive aggression towards one another but um i know sort of the the view that i had in southern washington for the time i was there was there were uh two main groupings and and then there was a third that was actually three males and occasionally one or two of those males would join with one of those other groups for a time and then they would go off on their own again
4: yeah that is very very typical primate behavior right there yeah
3: so i'm sure that probably happens everywhere
4: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: So this person goes on, they continue, they said it's been mentioned on the show that the range might be about 40 square miles, but is it correct to assume that a Bigfoot would not roam several hundred miles and drift away, say, northern Washington down into California? Uh, Any idea if the groups would exchange females or if males might come along and try to abduct females to, Created new group.
3: I, I'm not sure no, where the 40 square mile figure came from. Um, the group that I followed for a, more than a decade occupied an area of 3,300 square miles. So you know, and they they would move clockwise throughout that on a yearly movement pattern. So and actually, I've learned since then that large that area is larger because they go across the Columbia River in northern Oregon as well. So I'm not sure how much area they go there, but again you know there are other groups that would come into parts of that area they wouldn't follow they wouldn't go deep into that area they would come into the uh, like the northern boundary and then there's a group on the eastern boundary
1: and you know that sounds like a
3: huge area and it it actually is but if you want
1: to plot it on on a map uh, or a globe or or something like that you just use pi radius squared Mm -hmm. and uh yeah, you, know, you get a, it's because you know when you say how many how many square miles did you say it was? Well,
3: it's 3,300 miles.
1: So I thought thirty three hundred miles. Approximately, so, yeah. Yeah, so we're not talking west coast to east coast. No, if you take thirty three hundred, and you take your radius squared, pi radius squared. You know, nice
3: little segment there in one state. And and an example of how far they might travel in a year's time john green noted one of his books and this was about the bluff creek area and there was about six different individuals I, they identified over a decade in that area or that would come through that area they weren't they didn't live there they would come through that area periodically every couple of years uh they found tracks and tracks are like fingerprints you can identify individuals by their feet so one of the individuals a 15 inch track they found in bluff creek one year the following year they found the same track 150 miles south
1: And that, you know, that doesn't seem
3: unreasonable at all. Not for a year's time.
4: Yeah. yeah, no. no, and you, you study uh, different predators such as lions and even leopards. I mean, they all move. Uh, they have to move because, I mean, you, and especially something as big as a Bigfoot, you know, you can imagine what the consumption of food would be, uh, the caloric intake. Uh, they've got to keep on the move because they move into an area they're going to deplete their food source uh uh, fairly rapidly, so uh, and plus the fact that being predators, uh the prey is gonna realize they're there, so it's gonna move on to uh, greener pastures and so it's uh, you know cyclic uh, movement all the time, and they have to keep that way to keep from depleting the food resources in areas
3: exactly well, and, and that's why they move about it's approximately fourteen days before they they'll be in an area, then they'll move on
4: yeah
1: unless. You've got a group of mushroom pickers in the area, then they got an extra food supply.
3: Well, that's true. Yeah, and, and sometimes and sometimes groups are static to an area. It depends on you know if the area meets all the needs on a continued basis. But it's not it's not the norm. Normally they're moving. And which also accounts for why they're so difficult to catch up with.
1: Well, how what? many accounts have we I mean we just have uh, credible account after credible account where people live in an area and they say you know they came in we saw them for a while and then they left
3: and we didn't see them for a year or two and then and then they're back again the same time period roughly it's roughly the same 30-day frame yeah and and it's different for different parts of the country because you have different variations and in different types of terrain so a lot of that's you got to count all those factors in
1: Okay, um, we've got another question here, and this says, uh, what will it take to see Bigfoot finally proven by science to the world? If you had funding from an organization or wealthy individual to pursue that as a project in a systemic way, how would, how would you do it? Or has it already been done? Um, any thoughts on that?
3: Well, you know, Rene Dehendon used to tell me, I asked him this question years ago, and he said, the only thing science is going to believe is if you have a dead one, you have a body. Right. Because you could I do want to fight. comment on... He said you could have one picture or 10,000. he says, because there's always going to be somebody that says, oh, that's baloney. Then other people are just going to be on the edge and not want to jump on the bandwagon.
1: Right. And I think that even... <clears throat> that probably holds true even, I think, for DNA. Uh, that's another thing that you just... Uh, some people think that's the holy grail for proving you, their you existence. Have, yeah,
3: you don't have a known sample to compare it with.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I did want to comment, if a wealthy individual wants to contact us, uh, we're more than willing to uh, you right. know, partner with them. and <laughs> Feel free. Um,
3: well, and we could get so them what they, they want, too.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um does it take a dead body? We just answered that question. So, uh, very good question. Okay, Janae wants to know. Janae, thank you. Uh, Janae wants to know if does wood knocking and rock clack clacking uh, that you that you hear um, could it be a form of Morse code between them? And I think that's actually a good question. Is there some inherent information being transferred that they that's a really good question actually uh different type of rock clacks or noises uh do they mean different
3: things well they m- would mean different they things i'm not good. sure about the whole wood knocking thing yet i mean uh it's more like like tongue pops and things like that but when oftentimes when they're doing those kind of noises it, it's sort of like echolocation you know letting each other know where they are maybe what they're what they're supposed to be doing in accordance with um let's say a prey animal eating that includes people yeah what do you think Forrest? Uh,
4: well i think you're probably correct on that uh i mean it's like uh um i mean i don't know of any uh other primates that do uh wood knocks i mean i've heard uh tongue pops and such as that from uh chimps and gorillas but uh Um, they make, primates make all sorts of uh, different sounds and different uh, variations of sounds, and it's a form of communication to them, and it's pretty much known only to them. I mean, a human can't sit there and uh, listen and say, oh, well, that means such and such, or that means such and such, because you know what? We don't have any idea of what it really means. And that's usually
3: group-specific, right?
4: To them. Yes. In other words, you could is. have two and, groups
3: and make the same sound, but it means different things to different groups.
4: Yes. The only thing I've ever heard any real similarity in is uh, the way babies, and it will even vary a little bit between uh, uh, chimpanzees versus gorillas versus macaques or versus vervets or something like that uh, among the primates. But uh, the babies almost always make a hoot and screech. And uh, calling their mothers mm-hmm. when they're in a uh, uh, in a uh, situation where they they need mom to come rescue them, come find them. Uh, they almost all make the same. Uh, it'll be a hoot sound. Uh, maybe one, a couple of them, and then they'll make kind of a little screech after that. And all of them will. Uh, will all the the primates I've heard, uh, listened to do the same. The babies do the same thing. But it all sounds different. I mean, what a gorilla is going to do because of the size of their vocal cords, even as an infant, right. versus what a little boot's going to do, uh, it, it's going to sound. It sounds similar, but not exactly the same, and uh, the degree of intensity.
3: Tom, that makes me that made me think of a situation. Remember, we talked about this. We had a guy we interviewed. Who, in in, in a nutshell, the story was he encountered a juvenile. It pursed its lips, but didn't actually make an audible sound that he could hear. And then the adult exactly what a- I was appeared. Thinking.
1: You must be clear clairvoyant, because I was going to ask Forrest that same question: Are you, Forrest, are you aware of any primates mm-hmm. that have made inaudible sounds, like a high pitch or or a inaudible, either above or below the audible range of a sound? Human that range. Yeah, the well, human be, range, right?
4: You're talking about audible to humans. Uh... Yeah, uh, I ha- I haven't been present and I- I've never seen anything uh, in film footage that uh, looked like that. But to say that it doesn't happen, uh, I can't do that. I mean, I'd be that uh, just would be incorrect because, you know what? There's a lot of things that uh, uh, happens out there that, you know, we humans aren't privy to.
1: What about here's another question? Uh, this is just a kind of a thought that came to mind with the uh, tongue popping and the, the wood knocking, do any of the primates, are you, are you familiar with any of the primates, gorillas, <clears throat> excuse me, or chimps, maybe clapping their hands uh, to make a sound?
4: Oh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I've seen them do that. And uh, um, and the, the beating on their chest and stuff, they use, uh, you know, uh, that all these different sounds and stuff they make. Means something to them, and of course, somebody that studies them constantly can maybe, uh, you know, in the interactions of them can pick up on, uh, you know, we can assign human meanings to them. You know, if we see one beating their chest and then another one beats his chest, we can tell, well, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, my, look, my, my, my boom sounds bigger when I hit my chest than you, so therefore I'm the big, bigger and better guy. Uh, you know, chimps and, um uh, uh, gorillas do that. And that we hear uh, that I've heard accounts where they say that Bigfoot do that, too. We Uh, actually have have some uh, recordings of that. that. But I have a sinking suspicion that, you know, like I have said before, primates are primates are primates. Uh, And I think that it would probably have similar meaning to a Bigfoot uh, as to what it would mean to... uh, uh, a gorilla or even a chimpanzee and and I yeah I've seen them clap their hands uh, as to what it means I have no idea there you was know.
3: there was a video of a group of chimps that were gonna, were going to go hunting monkeys and you see the whole group and what the what the leader of the chimps does and it was interesting it jumped it sort of went out, it did kind of a handstand and it slapped its feet against a tree and that was the cue for the rest of the, they all fell in line and they went on the hunt. It was an interesting way to trigger that.
4: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I would suspect that there are probably even small, uh, deviations within one troop from another troop that, uh, you know, what might mean one thing and one troop, Uh, It might be a slightly different thing done in another troop, and and that would be a good thing because uh, the chimps have actually hunted other chimps, too, and uh, you wouldn't want to be signaling a hunt if this was, a a, you know, the handstand and then slapping the the tree with your feet. If that was a universal sign, well, you know, every chimpanzee and any other troop that was close around, they're going (laughs) to vacate the premises, you know, real quick.
3: You know, it's interesting so, uh, when, when we've had people um, we've talked to who said they, they use the term wood knock. And then when we said, well, tongue pop, and then the, and it's like a light bulb goes off. Oh, yeah, that's, that's more accurate. That's what it would be. And I think sometimes it's the terminology. It's that frame of reference. It's what's out there. And a lot of times people say that, but then you use a more um, descriptive term. And, and then they cue on that it's like oh yeah no no, that's that's more accurate that's what i heard
4: yeah exactly
1: all right um uh, wants to know how big can sasquatch footprints what's what's kind of the max size and i think this might be a good point to just interject uh will you you have mentioned several times the formula to calculate the height of a Bigfoot, which is you take the length of the, you know, the footprint in inches, times six point six, and divided by twelve mm-hmm. to come up with a pretty accurate height. So if you were to reverse that, that's a long-winded way of saying how big can the footprints get, and indicating so we would probably say, well, how big can the Bigfoot get?
3: Yeah, I mean there there have been, you know, there are stories where people. A couple of them. not lot. Well, it's not a common thing, but a couple of stories. And I think they're older ones where people say, Oh, up to 14 feet. Well, that would be a pretty big footprint. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you'd, you'd have to, and a lot of times it's hard for people to gauge size unless they walk by something that's a known height, something you can go out and measure and say, okay, this is, uh, you know, how tall it was. And, and we actually did that in Yakult. You know, we had, um, and I've mentioned this before the the family saw the female one night. I, they called me. I drove out there. We found, um, footprints in the flower bed that were fresh. There were 16 inch tracks. And let me do it quickly. Let's see. 16 times. And then divide 12. Oh, that didn't come out. Okay. so, I found sixteen inch tracks in the flower bed that were fresh. We saw eye shine, the creatures had moved, <clears throat> excuse me, out into the pasture area and there was a light out or there wasn't a light, there was a there was an old gate to a corral. And it had a two by four nailed across the top, and we measured that and the, the eye shine was right about even with the top of that, where the two by four was, right? We measured it the next day, it was eight feet exactly. So the sixteen-inch prints, when you calculate, you know, based on that formula uh, John Napier came up with, it comes out eight feet eight inches. So we knew that was sixteen-inch track is an eight, little over an eight-foot, eight and a half-foot creature. So in that case, it it proved out to be very accurate. Overall height, I think, unless you've got something a fixed object like that, you can actually measure. Uh, It's very difficult. I mean, it's like weight. You know unless you're really familiar with what things weigh um it's pretty difficult to gauge that but i think uh, you know the largest tracks largest credible tracks that i've known would have been up to about 20 maybe 21 inches but that's that's going to be really unusual typically the adult tracks range anywhere from 13 up to 17 inches track along That's big. That's, that's a big, big. A 17 big inch thing. is a big one. <laughs> yeah. I've seen 18 inch tracks. That's uh, that comes out a little over nine feet, uh, nine and a half feet, I think.
1: Yeah. You think about it and the, the American standard for, uh, the American Bureau of standards for your average house ceiling height is seven and a half feet. So that's always a good gauge You think, well, if something stood in my house, that its head went to the ceiling and then you can add additional 12 inches onto that for whatever size you can kind of get a good idea of just how big that thing is. So add a foot onto that and you got eight and a half feet, two feet, you know,
3: an an 18 inch track gives you 9.9 feet. And I, and personally I think that's probably the upper limit for the average.
1: And that's plenty big.
3: That's plenty big.
4: (laughs) That provides for a hole in the ceiling.
1: <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> okay, uh, well, it's been indicated that Bigfoot are more active in late summer and fall. Mm-hmm. And what are they doing during that? What more are they doing doing during that period? Is it moving around, hunting for meat versus vegetation? Uh, why would they be more active in you know late? late summer and autumn
3: they're probably yeah. fattening up for winter
1: yeah good point point. and because it is i, I gotta tell you i mean that's so many of the encounters and the sounds are just speaking from personal experience been late summer uh autumn
3: well i mean you think about winter and spring especially in the pacific northwest Now, the rest of the country may be different but that's the area that i'm more familiar with um, you know, food's a little leaner. It's easier to see them because a lot of leaves are off the trees unless you're, you know, in, in a, uh, where there's, you know, dug fur and those kind of trees. But, um, they're probably, you know, playing catch up food wise, you know, from the, from a winter and spring during the summer and fall. And, and then of course things like salmon are running in the fall, uh, late summer, early fall. So, you know, the food sources are, or during that time period, the heavier food sources.
1: You know, it always makes me think of that story in one of your books, the union Creek event mm-hmm. where a bunch of these things came after a, a father and son and they were lean,
3: they, they were, were, skinny. they
1: were tall. Yeah. they were skinny and they wanted to remediate that situation quickly the, with, uh, yeah, the
3: group of 20 plus <laughs> was coming after these guys. They were, there were no bones about that.
1: Yeah no pun intended, but, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay. So this person wants to know, uh, do you think they hibernate in winter? No. Okay. Mm.
4: There's no known primates
3: that do that. Right. And now, okay. And I um, pe- oh, just a quick note. I know people would say, well, well how come they're not seen as much during winter? They move up higher in the winter.
1: They new, yeah. If, and here's the thing: if they move to a higher elevation where it's snowy, you're not gonna see. There's, it. yeah. There's two things that are required for Bigfoot sighting. That's the sighter and the sightee. <laughs> so, <laughs>
3: well, and usually with that kind of snow and everything, you just yeah. you know humans aren't gonna have the accessibility
1: to where they are. Right, and if they are, they're usually on snowmobiles making a racket, and yeah, well, so there you go. Although, Will, you have an excellent set of footprints of your friend who now wasn't heavy snow. It, it had just begun to snow of one of these things crossing the road up in Washington State. Mm-hmm. I like that. Those are just awesome.
3: Yeah, love to fresh, run across that fresh snow, or maybe, maybe half an inch deep. Creature, yeah. creature walked directly across the highway. Tracks were probably, you know, five feet or so apart right not something a person's gonna do
1: no no not at all and i have seen half inches snow or less on the highway and we followed mountain lion tracks literally for miles and every once in a while it would veer off the road And the only thing we could think was a car came up so the thing ditched into the bush for a while then came back
3: on which sounds very much like the way the sasquatches in bluff creek area were you know they talked about going there and you know renee told me that he he they would follow miles of tracks thousands of them sometimes really there was one day he went there, well, they wasn't were, there an, i'm sorry go ahead oh
4: i'm sorry okay oh, I was just well, gonna say. wasn't there an incident in uh, snow was it snow washington where uh uh it was Late spring, but there was still a lot of snow on the ground where one had actually walked through. I mean, this uh, person had uh, been called out there and he followed this track for miles through backyards and uh, along back fences and then through orchards and everything else out there. And there was even one uh, place where he actually saw, and oh, Tom, this is going to bother you like it bothered me, uh, where cat footprints actually walked up to the tracks in the snow these bigfoot tracks on the snow the cat sprints ended right there at the um uh, the bigfoot sprints and then never went back Mm-mm. or crossed it Lunch. and uh this, this man actually followed those prints all the way through and even lost them where somebody was actually doing some uh stuff in a uh, orchard and the guy in the orchard said oh no well you can catch them up there they're over on the other side there because they were doing some cleaning in this orchard so they had actually uh, destroyed the tracks there but one of the workers said oh no you can pick him up over there on the other side of the orchard and lo and behold he did so
3: yeah uh, there are a number anyway. of stories <laughs> like that even the Bosberg tracks from 1970 that um you know renee de Hinden and ivan marx was with him they found these tracks, and they counted over a thousand of them in the snow. Mm. But there are lots of stories like that, you know, and that's what kind of baffles me today when people say, "Oh, I found a track." Okay, where are the other ones?
4: <laughs> yeah, <probably. laughs> Yeah, it just it one, jumped
1: out of the sky, poof, put. one one track, and it was gone. Um, we got a question from from our good friend Paul Salerno, and he's getting ready to. In the summer months, uh, I guess he's planning on going to see uh, a number of people and they're going to go to, uh, I thought he, I thought he said he's going to go up, but yeah, they're going to go up hiking, spend a week hiking in the Bluff Creek area and <laughs> was wondering, can you provide some uh, timely input for advice for folks planning on an outing? And I think what he's interested in is how can he see these things or get some evidence uh, and I replied back, um, just briefly that, you know, if you do go out hiking, travel in groups of four, that way if one person breaks a leg or gets injured, mm-hmm. one person stays with them and the other two go seeking help. There's never one person out alone.
3: Hi, Paul. Um, you know, Bluff Creek, and this is the thing, everybody focuses on Bluff Creek. Bluff Creek was not the focus of the creatures. Uh, they were actually coming in from west of their, and, and it was only once every couple of years they would kind of go over into the Bluff Creek area. Uh, but you know, and there's been, there's people up there all the time in that area. So it's not really a good place to go look for the creatures. And again, it wasn't, was never the focus of where the creatures were. Uh, historically so it's a good place to terrain? look at. Hmm?
1: So you say they came from the west. What's the terrain like? Is that heading towards the I don't know Northern California that well. Is well, that like that's Trinity actually the Alps or that's
3: actually Yurok tribal land to the west of there. So okay. they were the creatures were coming from that area. Now probably they were coming from the north. Um you know, so they were coming they were coming from southern Oregon is where they're coming from. Really, my guess would be more likely the Port Orford area, uh, which has a long history. I mean, you know, that area is where uh, the Sixes River is, and places like that. There were lots of encounters historically from that area.
1: Well, I uh, Port Orford's one of my favorite places to uh do a little vacationing at, and I gotta tell you, if you go there, there's uh, griffs, this has nothing to do with Bigfoot, it's griffs on the bay. They catch the fish, and within an hour, it's on your
3: plate. So, good food there. And, and you remember the story Buddy Fight told me when he was a young guy. Him and another biker went over into that area. They were going to find the Port Orford Meteor, and they found a Bigfoot instead. <laughs> and they thought it was going to eat them. They both shot it in the chest with 30-30s. It screeched and ran off, and, and they beat feet out of there.
1: <laughs> I love that story. And he actually took me
3: to that area. It's Boy, that's a that's a big, thick area of nothing.
1: Oh, really? You've you've been there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. Port Orford is a tiny little town. You can throw rocks from one end to the other. And as soon as you go
3: east, you know, into the, I guess that'd be the Siskiyous or the Coast Range, you're right. Yeah. It's absolute wilderness. And and we didn't actually go to the town. We drove cross-country into the area where he had that encounter. Interesting.
1: Well now i got something to do next time i go down there <laughs> and it's good for whale watching too it's got a huge huge bay and anyway all right enough of that um danny wants to know and i i i think it's a yes but he wants to know do the creatures have a complex like a spoken language and we hear that you know where you get the samurai chatter and it sounds like they you know, we've had people that have witnessed groups of these and, um, uh, you know, with binos and watched them use hand signals well, okay, as I'll,
3: well as vocal signals. People, people throw around the term language, they use a lot. People do think a lot of things very loosely today. First of all, you have to go, you have to go into what the definition of language is and all the particulars that make a language. Now they communicate and they have different ways to communicate, but is that a, you know, a fide language or not? Communication, yes. Language unknown.
4: Yeah, there's there's a whole lot of uh, factors that are involved in uh, language, uh, you know, syntax and all of that. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you have to realize that uh, so far, the only proven species with uh, a hyoid bone uh, is... Uh, which is a floating free floating bone in our throat, uh, we had it uh and by the way, Neanderthals had it too, so they had uh, uh means of having uh, language and speech. That is what's required to uh, operate our tongue and uh so that we can so that we can uh, speak <clears throat> and um, no other primate has that, and uh, so that hyoid bone in our throat uh it it sits underneath our mandible and uh um you um you know you always hear about uh, unfortunately i hate to to even bring this up but when people uh a lot of times are strangled Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that breaks immediately and at that point uh the the victim can't they can no longer speak but they they might screech but they can't speak uh but uh, Neanderthals had it, and uh, uh, so do all humans. So, uh, unless we find a Bigfoot, put them on the slab, and then uh, their, a necropsy uh, is done on them, there's no way of knowing that they um, you know, have that. And that's what would be necessary, first off, to even have uh, to produce speech. Right. Now, just like all primates, they make all sorts of chatters, chitters, and, mm-hmm. and sounds, and it and all has meaning to them. A lot of they use a lot of uh, hand movements and stuff that have meaning Mm -hmm. to them. Um, And the one thing that they, uh, I will interject this, that when they were uh, working with Coco and taught her sign language, they suddenly realized uh, that primates use sign language, but it's their own sign language. It only has meaning to them. Right. So, uh, and they all all use it, and it's all different. For every different type of species of monkeys and apes, so um, you know they have their own form of communication. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a language because it doesn't exhibit a syntax of language.
3: Right. I mean, people make a lot of assumptions. They use they use labels loosely with this topic, and you really can't do that. You have to be, you know, be more careful in what you're labeling something. Like you said, there's there's a lot a lot of noises, wide variety of noises they make, things that they understand. Is that a language, quote unquote? Probably not.
1: All right. Well, listen, we have a lot of excellent questions, but we're going to bring those up for the next show, next episode, and uh, stand by for the next segment.
3: All right. In Bigfoot history, the Dalles, Oregon, May 1967, Dennis Taylor told Roger Patterson that he and several other youths had frequently watched the Sasquatch cross the freeway near the cemetery, going from the hills to the river at about 11.30 p.m. and back up about 4 a.m. Sometimes there was more than one. They several times shot at these creatures with various weapons, and once one was knocked down with buckshot at close range, but leapt up and ran through a barbed wire fence, taking out three posts. They said the creature usually seen was nine feet tall and must have weighed half a ton. Its eyes glowed red.
0: Welcome. This collection of three stories is being brought to you by William Jeffning. It's being narrated by Jim Sower. These stories come to us from California. The first is Eureka, California, 1896. The second is Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base. And the third, Mysterious Shaver Lake. Story number one, Eureka, California, 1896. Interesting old story. In 1965, my mother's friend, an old dear from near Sacramento, showed her a letter. It was transcribed by her daughter, who found some of the usage and language amusing, and she presented it to her grammar school class. No one knows where the original is. It was found pressed into the pages of an old dictionary, but has since been lost or misplaced. Enjoy it. If you use it in your publication, please just refer to me as Jack. I enjoy the fruits of your research, and wish you many, many years of success in your endeavor. Regards, Jack, Lakota Sioux, Guide, Outfitter, Guide in our Great Northwest A few weeks back, my friend Jake McCoy and I were in witness to the following of accounts. We were well spent after an uncommon day of awful heat cutting timber. Our days in these woods were usually of a cool and foggy nature, with the heat rarely becoming to our discomfort. After our supper, Jake and I were of a mind to sit by the creek. With the next day being Sunday, we were able to enjoy an evening of our own doings. We were smoking and having coffee when we smelt something like "'a dead animal left to rot in the heat. "'I remember once coming upon a shot bear "'that his hunter could not trail, "'and it had laid and rotted for four days, by my opinion. "'It gave an awful stench, "'which would give many a disagreeable stomach. "'This scent was in similarity to that. "'We saw nothing out of the expected, "'but could hear a rustling in the brush "'just across the creek.' Being August, the creek was not more than four or five goodly strides from this bank across. A man could start to a run and jump fully across it, if he were determined of doing so. We saw a large man coming through the trees, and Jake stood up and asked what in creation it was. As I had just been looking towards the sun, my eyes did not give a clear viewing of what it was. I rubbed my eyes to have a look, and I was not in knowledge of what I saw. It appeared to be a bear at first, but we had not seen any bears in this area, and it walked as a man would on its two legs. If it was a man, he was covered with a dark hair, and long like the mane of a horse, and it was dark brown in color. Jake yelled out, Who goes there? But this man-beast did not make a response. It stopped in its tracks and looked at us from a distance of about seventy paces. We stood, but were froze, as we wondered of the type of creature we were in witness to. After just a moment or two, it turned and walked back up the hill in great long strides and with unexpected ease and swiftness. We heard it climb up the hill, and then all was silent. We noticed it walk for twenty or so paces, all of them upright. It had arms like a man's, but of a much bigger size and greater length than a man's. It must have been of great strength as we determined it to be greater in height than seven feet. We said nothing to our supervisors, as loafing and insubordination would get you off in looking for employment in other parts too many men wanted too little work. So, saying anything that would attract attention to yourself in a manner not deemed proper was not born of a good idea. However, an Indian named Joe, who frequented our camp to vend his wares, had told of a mountain giant uncommon to these woods. I explained what we saw, and he said his people often saw these giants. However, He said that most would see them in late night or darkness. The giants did not care to be seen and were quiet and careful to be hidden. Joe said that he could find tracks all along the creeks and rivers of a morning. I swear the events written here is the truth and happened with us being of a sound mind and in sobriety. L. T. Mills, 19 August of 1896. Eureka, California, as dictated to L.B. Small, clerk. This ends the reading of the first story. This next story is entitled Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base Surveillance, written by Doug Trapp. The sun dropped quickly behind the desert rock piles, revealing a deep red glow to the western sky as Corey Rudolph and I made camp at the east end of Avenue J in Palmdale one spring night in 1977. We had been visiting the area as often as possible in response to several credible Bigfoot reports in this California desert. To the east was nothing but dark black sky with thousands of stars and periodic meteors whizzing by. Our objective was twofold. One to observe all we could during the night, and, two, to get away from the Los Angeles rat race. We had been driving through the areas north of the mountains, separating the Los Angeles area from the desert, in search of clues and people to interview who claimed to have encountered the desert Sasquatch. Through the next three years, Corey and I, and sometimes myself with my faithful red-tailed hawk, Nixon, we gathered as much information on desert Sasquatch activity as we could. In many cases, the witnesses told very similar tales of large, hair-covered, man-like apes observed crossing the highway or looking in their windows at their homes, usually after midnight. Through these witnesses, we slowly became aware that the military, just north of Lancaster, California, at Edwards Air Force Base, had been witness to these desert man-beasts for several years. We finally made contact with three different military security officers, all of which did not know of the others, who provided us with information relating to what the Air Force knew about these animals. Before I continue with this, I must inform the reader that these three men were willing to discuss this with us only because we promised to never reveal their names or ranks. And if we did, they would deny everything. Because I believe in keeping promises, I will comply with their request, but will refer to them only by rank, since I do not believe that their status at the time would indicate or reveal their true identity, thereby keeping my promise. I will also add that I have spoken to five additional ex-military officers who were once stationed at Edwards Air Force Base, and they all claim that what the first three revealed was accurate, and that not much has changed there since the 1970s. The first I interviewed was a lieutenant in charge of security in the sector of Edwards Air Force Base near Rogers Dry Lake. He was primarily responsible for supervising the surveillance activity from sunset to sundown, from 1972 to 1975, when he was then transferred to Germany, then retired. This gentleman explained to me that the base security was primarily involved with monitoring for unauthorized entry to the base by curious seekers. The base was highly involved with classified secret aircraft testing at the time, and there were many curious people trying to take photos or just see these things. In addition, the base had a very high level of UFO activity, or, as he put it, alien spacecraft. In fact, he made it clear that these craft were not from Earth and that the Air Force knew very little about them. When any unauthorized people or alien aircraft entered his perimeter, he was to report it to the higher command and observe. All of his personnel had top security clearance and were to discuss nothing of what they saw. He further described some of these craft to me, but I was not very interested at the time. While they were conducting surveillance one night, always using starlight scopes, and motion detectors spread throughout the base, one of the guards reported an infiltration in his perimeter. When asked for details, the guard described a very tall man, but not really a man. Perplexed by such a report, he decided to drive to the location and talk to the guard, perhaps thinking the man had lost his marbles. When he arrived, a wide-eyed guard met him and repeated his story. The lieutenant began to scan the desert for the intruder and soon spied him, or it. Through the starlight scope, he could clearly see that this was not a man, It was a very tall, hair-covered, ape-like man walking through the desert. He said the animal appeared to be looking at the desert floor in search of something. The animal was about 500 yards distant, but the scope was very powerful and tripod-mounted, so it could be observed clearly. Both men continued to observe the animal as it wandered around almost aimlessly, He then reported to his superiors of the activity and was told to keep the animal in sight. This was no problem as the animal remained in the area. About five minutes later, a helicopter was heard approaching the area. Then it was seen coming in fast from the east. They continued to observe the animal which continued its activity. The helicopter came in over a rock pile, then the animal spooked. It looked at the helicopter, turned, and ran, like a deer, around a rock pile and out of sight. The helicopter searched the area, but never found the animal. The two men could hardly believe what they had seen. The next day, the lieutenant reported to the command post of the previous night's activity. The command told him that these animals had been seen on the base before, and the public knew them as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. The command explained that they were concerned that these animals may be related to the alien craft and that all such reports must remain top secret. He was told to continue to observe and report, but not to intervene or disturb the animals until the command determined what they were. The lieutenant had heard of Bigfoot before, but not in the desert. He had always thought that this was some sort of fable or hoax. But he knew what he saw, and now knew that they were real. Through the following years, he and his crew observed the Sasquatches on the base several times. By 1975, they had sophisticated equipment including video surveillance cameras mounted in key areas. He then explained to me that they had videotaped these animals several times, but the tapes were classified and held under top security at all times. By the time he left Edwards, they had learned very little about these creatures, but his feeling was that they were not UFO-related, but biological living beings. The second officer I interviewed was a major before he too retired in 1978. He had served at Edwards Air Force Base from 1970 through 1978, and was in charge of one of the command posts on the north end of the base. He, too, explained that they were primarily interested in UFOs and aliens. In fact, it was through his words that I first heard the term EBE, which is apparently the military term for aliens or extraterrestrial biological entities. It is only in recent years that this term has been coined in UFO books, relating to the military UFO cover-up. In any case, the Major confirmed what the Lieutenant had told me, but added that these creatures also found their way into the secret underground tunnels that run under Edwards. Although the use and existence of these tunnels was classified, he told me about them knowing that their importance was a moot subject to me. He said that they had surveillance cameras in the tunnels and had, in fact, videotaped the Sasquatches as they wandered through them. He said that they were not concerned with the Sasquatches on the base because they had learned that they were not related to EBE activity, and that they were certain that they were simply undiscovered animals. When I asked why they had not captured or killed one in order to prove the existence to the world, he returned that they could not reveal anything that happened on the base. He said that if they were to admit that these creatures often wandered around on the base, the public would lose confidence in their ability to keep the base secure. This, in turn, would give people the idea that they could do the same. Since there was so much secret work continuing on the base, it was not in their interest to discuss the Sasquatches with the public. They wanted to keep people out, not encourage them to visit in search of sasquatches. They already had enough problems with UFO seekers or those wanting to get a peek at the secret aircraft. The third man was a security grunt, that is, what he termed himself. He claimed to have seen these desert sasquatches through starlight scopes on scores of occasions. This man was only about 19 years old, but extremely military in his self-presence. HE CALLED ME, SIR, UNTIL I ASKED HIM NOT TO. HE TOLD ME THAT HE HAD SEEN A COUPLE OF SASQUATCHES THAT STOOD OVER TEN FEET HIGH, HAD SEEN OBVIOUS FEMALES, ONE WITH A YOUNG ONE WALKING WITH HER, AND ONCE SAW A GROUP OF FIVE SASQUATCHES WALKING TOGETHER, ALL OVER SIX FEET TALL, WITH THE TALLEST ABOUT EIGHT FEET TALL. THEY WERE FULLY HAIR COVERED, EXCEPT THE PALMS OF THEIR HANDS, AND THE BASE OF THEIR FEET, AND THEIR FACE. He said their face resembled an ape with very small eyes, a flat nose, and ape-like lips. The arms were long and slung down to their knees. He said their feet were like ours, without an arch, as they had tracked them through the desert several times. When I asked him about the surveillance videos, he told me that he knew of them, but was not involved in that. He said only officers were allowed to videotape the creatures or UFOs. Cameras were not allowed on the base in the hands of the grunts. He said that he felt very privileged to have seen these animals with such clarity because he knew there were several like himself that would do anything to see one. However, he suggested that these animals were not as rare as people assumed, but they are very shy and almost strictly nocturnal. They could be photographed, given the right opportunity, but those opportunities were rare because these creatures are very good at remaining concealed, even in the desert. He told me that the reason they were on the base was that they knew that they would not be harmed. He thought that somehow they could feel danger or even pick up on human thoughts. Since the officers and grunts on Edward's were ordered not to harm or intervene with the creatures, they could feel this vibe and felt protected. Some of these animals, of course, wander around outside of the base, but these animals are always watching their backs, he explained. To conclude this report, I should advise that several sources have told me in recent years that the desert Sasquatches are still being watched at Edwards Air Force Base. In fact, One officer recently told me that the base security actually appreciates the presence of the Sasquatch there since they give the officers some needed entertainment. Then a question came to mind. Could the EBEs be just as interested in the Sasquatches as they are of other base activities? The officer stopped for a moment, thinking, then said simply, Perhaps... Written by Douglas E. Trapp Dallas, Texas This ends the second reading. This brings us to the last of the three stories. Mysterious Shaver Lake, Fresno County, California Many sightings, four in summer 2012. Additional sightings occurred in September and other updates. Sierra Range June 2012, around 9 o'clock p.m. Not quite sure how to type this, 9 o'clock p.m., stone sober, while driving, I saw up to my right, illuminated only for a couple seconds, as I was towing downhill in a corner turn doing 15 miles per hour, what I believed to fit all descriptions of a Bigfoot. But as I turned the corner, I lost sight what I saw with the time that I had was half a stride, pause, look and turn, and beginning to stride away. If it wasn't a Bigfoot, then it was a slim bear striding around on his rear legs with all the dimensions of Bigfoot, or maybe a seven-foot-tall, 400-pound, ex-football player playing with scaring people, and he got me for a minute or two, In my mind, a lot taller than a man, and his bulk was proportional to Bigfoot's. No way for it to be anything else. I know my shapes. The area was hilly, located at the end of Highway 168. Four-lane highway, next down to two lanes. Small plateau type. Small meadow. Above roadway elevation is 3,000 or so. I notified no rangers. June twenty fourth, 2012 The aforementioned report prompted this response. A woman reported that her daughter's boyfriend had a sighting in the region of Shaver Lake. In part, she reported, he saw the Bigfoot in his headlights, crouched down next to the road. As he hit his brakes and came to almost a full stop, the Bigfoot stood up straight, strolled off, then ran up the hill and into the trees he had an unobstructed view for about five to ten seconds. He is a mountain resident that has hunted bear and swore unequivocally that it was not a bear or a man in a suit. It was huge, with a huge chest and did not move like a man, and that its strides were very long. I believe that he is telling the truth. He is just not a BS kind of guy that would make this up. His mom reported that he called her almost hysterical over what he saw. Saturday, June thirtieth, 2012 Carla and Manuel M. filed report that was not a physical sighting. While honeymooning at a rental cabin on Shaver Lake, California, they heard vocalizations being emitted from one side of the lake to the other. Manny M. wrote that the sounds were whoops like whoop 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 in a series of three sets that started on one side of the lake and then returned whoop
2: whoop whoop
0: from the other side of the lake. This went on for several hours after midnight, three nights in a row. On their last night there, Carlo woke Manny up and ushered him out onto their bedroom porch that was overlooking the lake the two of them heard a baby crying that lasted three or four minutes. The sound was that of an infant, and it was a frantic cry, and very loud, echoing across the lake. It also emanated from deep within the forest area on the opposite side of Shaver Lake. As they returned to their bedroom, the whoops started up again. Carla said it was very creepy, and that it prevented them from exploring the rocky terrain and much of the lakefront while they honeymooned there. Wednesday, July 11, 2012 Two forestry workers for Southern California Edison, the company that owns Shaver Lake, stopped to eat their lunch on the banks of Shaver Lake. As they were getting up to head back to their utility truck, parked on the frontage way of Highway 168, they both stopped cold as a reddish-colored Bigfoot walked out of the trees and into the lake. One of the witnesses who filed the report said his visual was too quick to accurately judge its height, other than to say it was a pretty big fella with a heavy coat of tangled-like-looking hair all over. He said it surfaced and swam toward the eastern side in what looked like a very strong dog-paddle kind of stroke. He was really moving. The two men stood there dumbfounded as the Bigfoot swam out of sight. Additional Sighting 2009 The SCE informant in the above report said that when he mentioned the sighting to his daughter's music teacher, she related another story told to her that took place also at Shaver Lake in 2009. In any case, it was a second-hand report that told of three campers who were driven out of their tents in the middle of the night by a screaming mimi that unstaked their tents and attempted to drag them off tent and all into the night somewhere they fled for their lives and did report it to forestry the next day it was also reported on the internet not sure where the informant was asked if he knew what the forestry official did and he said apparently nothing, and indicated they were either mistaken or it was a bear. The music teacher had said, though, we know black bears do not behave that way, and we have no grizzlies in California. It leaves one to wonder what there is left in the forest that would rip up the tent stakes and heave tents with people inside around the campsite. Bears just don't behave that way. Of interest in that story was that the campers kept a high campfire going at night and that the fire did not deter the attack by the Sasquatches. The music teacher said there were two of them, maybe even a third, but nobody stuck around to find out. This isn't the first recording of a campsite attack. The other was in Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. But around Shaver Lake and nearby communities... Everyone has a story to tell about Bigfoot. Shaver Lake History Surrounding Areas The cast of Finding Bigfoot television series was in Shaver Lake in March of 2012, interviewing witnesses in a town hall meeting event. At that meeting, Ken Gentry said his group had a huge rock hurled at them from 300 feet away, on the top of a ridge, and saw it as it was launched, They were hiking near Three Rivers, not far from Shaver Lake area. It was a very large rock. One of the athletic guys on our crew, Billy, picked it up and tried to throw it, but he couldn't throw it even twenty-five feet. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I would have had a hard time believing it actually happened, Gentry said. October, 2012 Three middle-aged men go missing near Shaver Lake region. A backpacker, his car was found near Shaver Lake, and a second hiker went missing in the general area of the Sierra National Park, where there were three or more separate Bigfoot sightings summer of 2012. Two hikers were found, but Larry Kahn, 53, is still missing, eleven six twelve. Another sighting contains a lengthy bunch of extraneous information about the surroundings and little about three large cinnamon brown humanoid figures that moved through a stand of spruce trees the nearest town shaver lake shaver lake small town magazine filed this article written by jolene polyak in the summer fall of 2012 jolene attended the shaver lake town hall meeting southeast of shaver lake is great deer hunting, according to Bruce Decova, 51, and his hunting partner, Samuel Broderick, 46, from out of state. It is an area south of Huntington Lake, just short of Dinky Creek, off to the eastern rim of Shaver Lake. In late 2009, the two men went looking for a prime place to set up for the hunting season. In the process, Broderick was taking an armload of firewood to the nearby fire pit when he noticed not one, but two dark figures in the trees. He continued toward the fire ring, dumped the firewood, and put his hand on Dakova's shoulder, whispering to him not to be obvious, but to look in that direction when he could. He whispered that they were being watched by what he thought might be a couple of Bigfoot. Dakova, a veteran trophy hunter, had heard such stories, but thought Bigfoot was imagined. He went about setting up their tent and then cleaned off his Ray-Ban sunglasses so he could look around without his eyes giving him away. Sure enough, there were two very tall individuals watching them not thirty-five feet from where he was staking the tent. The pounding of the stakes echoed in the trees, but there were no other sounds to be heard. The Bigfoot made no noise. Dakova turned at that point and told Broderick that he also could see them and was amazed. To break the tension, Dakova yelled over to Broderick, Do they understand English? Broderick broke into a nervous laughter-like, <laughs> and began nervously singing the state fight song. Dakova joined in as they edged toward the rifles laying on the ground. For his part, Broderick was admittedly nervous and hurriedly reached down to unzip the cover off his rifle and loaded it just in case the two creatures came into camp. Apparently, when Broderick raised up the rifle to load it, both Sasquatch departed. The two hunters told me they did not see the creatures again or notice anything unusual during the night. There were no screams and no rock-throwing, and none of the usual nighttime Bigfoot antics reported by other hunters. The description of the two Bigfoot was minimal. They were in the eight foot range, according to the height of the trees where they stood, and dark in color. Otherwise no additional details were given. Rob Janus The behavior of the Shaver Lake Dinky Creek watchers was decidedly different from most reports from hunters in that the two Sasquatch apparently knew what the rifle meant, even though the two hunters did not acknowledge their presence. There are reports of vocalizations in that region, and a number of recent sightings of varying color, description making Janus conclude that there might be a diverse population in that region. Janus also noted in his report that neither Broderick nor Dakova bagged a deer that trip In fact, Broderick said he never spotted one and even that was unusual. Update December 29, 2012 Mosmanco 253 wrote December 28, 2012 that he and his girlfriend were riding around looking at property in the Shaver Lake area when they decided to pull over and break out sandwiches at the dead end of Dorabella Road. He looked up as the woman with him cried out, Look! Look! and saw a very strange sight. Heading back into the far side of the trees was a man in a furry costume. He didn't report it because he thought it was a joke until he read this page and decided to report it as a possible Bigfoot sighting that occurred on September fifteenth, 2012. In hindsight, "'The witness said what he thought was a man in a costume "'was much too tall to be a joke. "'This was about twelve-thirty on Saturday afternoon. "'We were parked, eating chicken sandwiches "'and sharing a Diet Pepsi, when this happened. "'My lady friend didn't think it was a costume, "'but some kind of creature, "'because the furry part was reddish "'and long fur down his back "'and not like a hooded costume. "'If this was a Bigfoot the couple saw,' It brings the sighting total around Shaver Lake to five in 2012. Update. Shaver Lake missing hiker Larry Kahn, a Los Angeles-based attorney who worked at Possinelli Shugart, has not been found as of this date, March 31, 2013. The search for the resident of Pacific Palisades was suspended in November 2012, after no trace of the man was found other than his car. Update. Hiker Matthew Hansen has been found, but no details. A report came in January 2013, but the sighting took place back in 1998. A cabin owner near Shaver Lake, California, reported hearing a pack of coyotes yipping and chirping away at something. Walking over to his window, he saw a Bigfoot carrying some kind of large feathered bird in its hand, walking up the road towards his place on Sweetgrass Road. The coyotes were jumping up, trying to bite whatever it was the creature was carrying. He called to his wife and son, and they also saw it as it walked off through the trees, down a dirt trail, which was later paved. R.C. 1998 This concludes the reading of the three stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning, and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of this story, Clue to Gorilla Men Found May Be Lost Race of Giants, July 16, 1924. The Siatic, Siatko, and Other Spelling Variations. Clallam Indians tell of eight-foot siotics who killed game by hypnotism. Existence kept secret by other tribes. Hoquay in Washington. Mountain devils discovered at Mount St. Helens near Kelso are none other than the Siotic tribe, said George Totsky, Clallam tribe editor of The Real American, an Indian national weekly publication in an interview here today. Siatic is a Clallam pronunciation. All other tribes pronounce it siat The Indians of the Northwest have kept the existence of the Siatics a secret, partly because they know no white man would believe them, and the Indian, known for his honesty and truthfulness, does not like to be called a liar, and partly because the Northwestern Indian is ashamed of the Siatic tribe, said Totsky. The mountain devils or guerrillas who bombarded the prospector's shack on Mount Saint Helens in 1924, according to the description of the miners, are none other than the Siatic tribe with whom every Indian in the Northwest is familiar," said Totsky. Were thought to be extinct, the Siatics were last heard of by the Clallam Indians about 15 years ago, approximately 1899 to 1909, and. It was believed by the present-day Indians that they had become extinct. The Siatic tribe also made their home in caves, in the heart of the wilderness on Vancouver Island, and in the Olympic Range, in particular Mount St. Helens. As described by the Clallam Indians, the Siatics are seven to eight feet tall. They have hairy bodies like the bear. They are great hypnotists, and kill their game by stunning them with hypnotic power. They also have a gift of ventriloquism, throwing their voices at great distances, and can imitate any bird in the Northwest. They have a very keen sense of humor, Totski added. In the past generations they stole many Indian women and Indian babies. They lived entirely in the mountain coming down to the shores only when they wanted a change of diet. The Quinaults claimed that they generally came once a year to the Quinault River about fall. The Klalams say they favored the river area near Brennan on Hood Canal. After having their fill of fresh salmon, they stole dried salmon from the Indian women. The Siatic tribe are harmless if left alone, the Clallam tribe, however, at one time several generations ago, killed a young man of the Siatic tribe to their everlasting sorrow, for they killed off a whole branch of the Clallam tribe but one, and he was merely left to tell the tale to the other Klallams up sound. The Klallam Indians believed that the Siotic tribe had become extinct. It is fifteen years since their tracks were last seen and recognized at the Brennan River, Prior to that time, many Clallam Indians have met and talked with men of this strange tribe, for the Ciatics talk the strange tongue of the Clallams, which is said to have originated from the Bear tongue. The Quinault Indians, however, claim that Fred Pope of the Quinault tribe and George Hyasman of the Saxop tribe were fishing about fifteen miles up the Quinault River in the month of September four years ago, 1920, when they were visited by the Sciatics. The two Indians had caught a lot of steelhead trout, which they had left in their canoe, and the Sciatics stole these. Henry Napoleon of the Clallam tribe is the only Indian who has ever been invited to the home of the Sciatic tribe. It was while Napoleon was visiting relatives on the British Columbia coast about thirty years ago. THAT WOULD HAVE MADE THE YEAR ROUGHLY 1895, THAT HE MET Sciatic WHILE HUNTING. THE GIANT INDIAN THEN INVITED HIM TO THEIR HOME, WHICH IS IN THE VERY HEART OF THE WILDERNESS OF VANCOUVER ISLAND. NAPOLEON CLAIMS THAT THEY LIVE IN A LARGE CAVE. HE WAS TREATED WITH EVERY COURTESY AND TOLD SOME OF THEIR SECRETS. He claims that the giant Indians made themselves invisible by strange medicine that they rub over their bodies and that they were able to cause great fear by hypnotic power and had the gift of ventriloquism to mimic the owl and throw their voices. Some Indians claim that during the process of evolution, when the Indian was changing from animal to man, the sciatic did not fully absorb the tamanois or soul power, and thus he became an anomaly in the process of evolution. The Indians of the Northwest are of the belief that the mountain devils found at Mount St. Helens are indeed the Siatic Indians, and it is generally their custom to frighten persons who have displeased them by throwing rocks at them. This is the end of the story. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact
2: us at William Jevning at yahoo.com That's William J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.